That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. BFFT. Now, built by high caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Spencer McLaughlin with the Ball Face Truth. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome into the Ball Face Truth. Spencer McLaughlin with you here on the BFT Radio Network. Stephen and Jude are here with me as well. Great to have you in. Grateful to be here. For those of you not familiar with me, I'm the host of Locked On Pac 12 and Locked On Ducks, both of which have been, shall we say, busy topics recently and we will get to them and so much more today thanks so much for making this a part of your day so last week when uh, we were coordinating this whole endeavor for me to fill in for for john today my mom asked me well what are you going to talk about what are you going to talk about i said mom it's 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 like friday of of the week before i don't know what i'm going to talk about yeah i have an idea i have a couple thoughts but you gotta you know wait for the news to come you gotta know what the news is actually going to be and the news right now is that Colorado has as of about 45 minutes ago formalized their return to the Big 12 their Board of Regents voted unanimously nine to zero ironically one of the board members uh, mentioned growing up and seeing Nebraska red at Colorado games I hope she's aware that that is not going to happen when Colorado goes back over to the Big 12, but the buffs are gone, and now the question is, does the Pac-12 survive? Can they survive? Do they even have a path to survive? The answer is yes, there's a path, but the likelihood of that actually coming to fruition, it's a lot less likely now than it was eh, just about 48 hours ago. And for the second time in just over a calendar year, when the Pac-12 got caught flat-footed, with the departure of USC and UCLA and announced that they were authorizing George Klyovkov to pursue their their media rights negotiation, getting their next deal and everything, they have once again been seemingly caught off guard. And now George Klyovkov is in diehard scramble mode. I I mean, more so than a golfer who is in the woods under a leaf behind behind a log. He, He is in scramble mode at the moment. Because if any other teams decide to leave the conference, which is not impossible whatsoever, because there's no fee to do so, that's, that's, I think, an important component of all of this sort of stuff, is to join a new conference by 2024 with no media deal or grant of rights, there's no exit fee like San Diego State would have to pay the Mountain West if they leave. There's no you know uh, payments that are going back to the other member schools like Texas and Oklahoma and the Big 12. It's just... Where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? So the Pac-12 is in, shall we say, a, a dire situation at, at this point in time. And look, 
when Colorado was was still there, I, I think they create a lot of momentum more than they are a crushing loss per se to the Pac-12 conference athletically. I mean, they've only been to one conference championship game. They've only had two winning seasons since joining the league on the football field. Their basketball team has just been, you know, kind of middle, close to the top, but never getting to the top of the conference uh, consistently. Their women's basketball team has been quite good, but they haven't been an athletic flagship for the conference, which is one of the reasons I think the conference can still survive, but it's the momentum that it creates. Because in college sports, perception is, I think, far more important than in professional sports. And it's why the Pac-12's decision throughout this entire process to just forego a PR strategy, to just not play the game, to not try and paint your league in the best light that you can, to let others talk about your conference in a way that was sometimes excessively negative, sometimes accurately negative, to just never push back. It seems to have come back and bitten them in the rear end here. But the moment that they have right now is an opportunity to keep the league alive, but they can't have any other defections. They, 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 they just cannot. Because it feels like if even one more school, I don't even know if it would matter which school, if you have just one more school depart, it feels like the snowball effect is coming. Because college sports, like I said, about momentum, about perception. And if you have one team leaving on the heel of two other teams leaving after the season, and then another team goes, it feels like other schools would get antsy. And I know we've seen all these statements over the last many months about, you know, they're committed to being together and they're meeting the PAC 12 CEO group uh, sometime today, probably during the course of, of this show about when or about what, what they can do next, what their options are. Are, what they can do. But there's a quote out there from Robert Robbins, who's the president of the University of Arizona, which is saying what he has basically said for the last several months, which is we want to be in the Pac-12. We want to be here, but we need to see what the media deal is. And I don't know where they're going to be in that in those negotiations because they got this far, right? Everyone loves to say, oh, there's no deal. Well, no, there is no finalized deal. That much is obvious. That's what drove Colorado to go to the Big 12 in the first place. But there's a structure, there's a framework, there's an idea, there's a concept out there. But now the Pac-12 might be in, in, in an even tougher spot because they might have to go back to the drawing board. You, you, you might have to go back and, I don't know that you have to start all the way over, but something has to change. You were having all of these talks for all these many months as if Colorado was going to be a part of it. So if you have to go back and find an expansion candidate, which I will get to in just a moment, and then work that back into the deal, and then figure out what losing the Denver media market potentially means to the valuation of said deal, and whether or not that's attractive enough to keep other schools on board. This stuff has to get done quickly, and I, I, I don't know how quickly it can, get, it can get done. It's possible, but boy, it sure feels like the Pac-12 is just, is just teetering right now. And you know what? Frankly, I talk about this stuff all the time. And I've been covered on my Locked On Pac-12 show for, for many, many months. And it is, it is fascinating at some level, but I don't like it. As a college football fan, I don't like it. There are a lot of people listening to the show right now. They're probably not fans of it. Because depending on which Pac-12 program, which school you support, the future of your team might not be in your own hands. 
It might be in the hands of other people. And the conferences that are trying to make these powerful moves and everything. So I, I think it stinks for, for fans. But the options for the Pac-12 are not incredibly numerous, but they're not zero. They're, they're, there's more than one option available. So they have to expand. I, I, I cannot see a world in which the Pac-12, they're sitting at nine teams right now. You can call it the Pac-9. Pack 10, whatever. We'll do, why don't we just refer to it as the pack for now, since we have no idea how many teams are going to be in it starting in 2024. I cannot see a world in which the pack survives without expanding by at least one team to get back to 10, because no one operates with an odd number of teams. It's why the Big 12 is not done. We're waiting for that domino to fall, because the Big 12, now with Colorado as a part of it, starting in 2024, Texas and Oklahoma leave. They brought in the other four, Cincinnati, Houston, UCF, BYU. Now they've brought in Colorado. They've brought them back to the conference. Brett Yormark is quite happy about that. The commissioner of the Big 12, understandably so. But they're not going to sit at an odd number of teams. They would like to get another pack. Heck, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that they would, want, they would like to get multiple Pac-12 schools. That they'd say, yeah, sure, we'd take this one and this one and this one and get ourselves up to a 16-team conference the way the Big Ten is. You're not going to get to the Big Ten in terms of media rights valuation, but if you could get there from a numbers standpoint, you'd give yourself, in theory, a better fighting chance to compete with a lot of the teams that are out there in, in the Big Ten because you have more schools that would have an opportunity to do so. Now, it depends on which schools you pull because Colorado is years away from being a playoff contender. I mean, they're a long, long ways away. I know Dion's brought in you know 50 transfers and – 70 new players and everything like that. Vegas is rarely drastically wrong. And they've got the win total for Colorado sitting at three and a half right now. And they're 20 point underdogs week one at TCU. So they're at least two, probably three to four years away from actually being a, a contender on that front. But the other school to watch in the big 12 move here is, uh, is UConn because UConn is the, they're the current national champions in men's college basketball, which is something the Big 12 prioritizes in, in a major way. They have a football program that has a coach that, you know, Jim Mora Jr., that has was once upon a time a coach in the Pac-12. It's, you know, a little bit reminiscent of Brady Hoke down at San Diego State. It's not the top option, but he would at least know what he's doing if they were to add him. I think UConn is on standby right now for the Big 12 depending what happens in, uh, in, in the Big 12. Judah, am, am I out of my gourd here to say that the Big 12 would not go for just one more Pac-12 school, but that they would take three if they were, if they were able to get them? Well, as much as I want to say, uh, and, I, and I love saying Say it, that, that you're out, you're of, out of your gourd, gourd. I, I, don't I don't think, think that that's the case, the case in this, in this, in this scenario. scenario. I think, I think you're, you're uh, hitting, hitting the nail, the nail on, the on the head. Uh, uh, and, and as, as good as, as I sound, sound right now, I'll, I'll uh, fix, fix that technical, technical issue here. But no, I, no, I, I think you're right on the money, and it's up, it's up to Oregon, Oregon and Washington to be the, to be next, the next domino, domino to fall. And, and those are the biggest, the biggest football brands that are left le left in the pack. So let's talk about Oregon. A lot of Duck fans probably listening to this uh, right now. So if I were Brett Yormark, I would be calling up Oregon. I would be borderline annoying i personally am very familiar with being annoying i'm a little brother that's like that's our mo right there 
But I, I would be calling Oregon and making every effort to get the Ducks as the other school. If you were going to go for just one, I don't see how Oregon isn't the top option there. If you're talking television ratings, Oregon is the best school remaining in the pack. They would get you into the Pacific time zone, which is something that Brett Yormark has has prioritized. And all these remarks about Colorado and you know why they're uh, you know valuable for 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 the Big Twelve, even though they haven't done anything of of note in football in I, I don't know twenty some odd years. They, they went to a Pac-12 title game in 2016. That's the only notable season they had. During their time in the pack, they weren't good in the Big 12 uh, previously then either. So they add that school and see value in Colorado for the same reason, partially, they wanted to add BYU and did. Because Brett Yormark wants the Big 12 to be the most national conference that he can. And that's that's the world of conference realignment that you are in right now. You, you are trying to be in as many time zones as possible. You are working to make yourself have the biggest reach to be able to play i mean if you were if you were to be in all four time zones as the big 12 of which they're currently in three they've got the eastern time zone with uh i think ohio's in the eastern time zone i could be wrong on that but i know that central florida is and then you have the central time zone covered of course because that's where the big 12 schools are now you have byu and colorado in the mountain time zone so you have to think about well if you had a school that was all the way out west like oregon and if you were to get another school in there, be it Washington or Oregon State, Washington State, San Diego State, whoever, you could have Big 12 football playing on Saturdays in every single time slot. Perhaps not every week, depending on how the schedules would shake out, but you could do that several times a year and you'd be the only conference that could be able to make that claim. And that's no small thing for the Big 12. But the other reason that I would look at Oregon is Part of the reason, and I've talked about this a lot on on my Pac-12 show before, but part of the reason that, you know, some people who have wanted a a Big 12, Pac-12 merger wouldn't happen is the the Pac-12 university presidents and chancellors who deserve a solid amount of blame for for this entire situation that the conference currently finds itself in. The commissioner uh, does as well, but the commissioner is also working at the behest of the presidents and, and chancellors. Presidents are the ones that are truly driving realignment. But Oregon is, as a university, is not in the same kind of academic class of a Washington, a Stanford, or a Cal. And the Big 12 as a conference does not prioritize it in, in as big a way either. They, they are not an academically driven conference. The Big Ten has got a bunch of great schools like Northwestern. Michigan is a very good school. USC and UCLA now are very good schools. They're very big research schools. It matters to the conferences. It's not everything, but it is a component. But to the Big 12, it's kind of secondary, and they're all about looking like a move that eh, is working for them pretty darn well right now. So if you were to look, you were just going to get one more team, and you're looking for a school that to place as high a priority on on academics as as some of the other institutions like a Stanford, a Cal, or even a Washington, I think. Oregon as a school, to me, seems very motivated by athletics and that that is their number one focus. And that that's what they want. They want to have the best sports possible. They just extended Dan Lanning's contract 
to, you know, try and lock him down as their coach, regardless of where they end up playing their conference games. But I think Oregon would be more likely perhaps than others. At the very least, I think they'd be the least likely to say no for academic purposes when looking at when looking at the Big 12 of the schools that are out west. Now, Oregon State, Washington State, of course, they'd be interested. But if you're the Big 12, are you going to go after Oregon State or Washington State or even Washington for that matter? Or are you going to go after Oregon? If you're trying to make a splashy move, if you're trying to make a go for the jugular kind of move. Over the last several, several years, dating back at least, you know, well before the pandemic, Oregon has averaged the most television viewers in the Pac-12 per game. And they're probably the biggest brand remaining out on the West Coast football-wise that is, you know, still left in the pack. You've got Washington in the mix. You've got Utah in the mix. But Oregon has separated themselves at some level at this time in terms of brand power and television power. So if I'm Brett Yormark, Oregon is the school that I'm calling and saying, hey, if you want to if you want to be in a conference that is prioritizing athletics, that is going to give you the sort of stability and security that the pack simply cannot offer you at this point in time, then that's the pitch for the Big 12, or from the Big 12, from Brett Yormark, the commissioner, to Oregon, and whoever he'd be speaking to there. And conversely, if you're George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, who's in a pretty tough spot. And look, it is really, really easy to harp on George Klyovkov and this whole Colorado thing and the inability to get the media rights deal done, which is what drove Colorado to leave. Colorado did not want to leave. Everything that they are saying and that has been reported is that they felt forced to go there because of the uncertainty that exists in the pack because they still don't have a media deal done. And there was certainty and stability in the Big 12. So they headed over there. So if you can't offer that, if you're George Klyovkov, you don't have a great offer to make, but you have to continue to, I mean, you, you have to just find a way to get any kind of media deal done. Because the, 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 these constant updates, they have to wear on the university presidents and athletic directors and people around the school as much as they wear on, on, on fans and people like me. Just these constant updates, oh, yeah, it's in its final stages. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's loosely with the football for Charlie Brown. It's just they put it down. And then they make the statements and then you run up and kick it. And the football is just never there. So at some point, you've got to be able to deliver a deal. And then the side pitch that you make, if you're George Klyovkov, as to why, hey, Oregon or hey, Washington or hey, whoever might suddenly be having a conversation with the Big 12. Here's why you shouldn't be interested. It's that you have the best path to a conference championship in the pack. And the strength of the conference from a football standpoint is not materially impacted by Colorado leaving, both of which are true. But are either of those points going to hold up against the other side of the coin, which is there's still no media deal? It's not there. You've been working at it for many, many months. And for Colorado, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. As they said, you know what, we, we're tired of waiting for this. 
their 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 chancellor and athletic director said that uh, Phil Phil DeStefano, their their president, said they were they were wanting to have a hard deal presented by uh, by Thursday by Pac-12 Media Day, and that didn't happen. And Colorado then began the negotiations behind the backs of of George Klyovkov and the rest of the Pac-12 presidents. And so here we are. And if you're George Klyovkov, you have to make some sort of pitch. You got to be working. But I just don't know if it's going to be strong enough if the Big 12 were to suddenly become interested. We are loaded today. Carter Baines of 24-7 Sports at the National Writing Desk and BeaverBlitz.com. What does all this mean for the Beavs? Are they just standing by and watching, or could anything be in the works? We'll talk about that coming up next. Spencer McLaughlin here on the Bald Face Truth, in for John Canzano on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano, rolling along here in hour one on the Bald Face Truth. Lots to get to around the Pac-12 and whether or not there will even be a Pac-12 come Monday morning. It's a valid question to ask, so let's talk about it with Carter Baines, BeaverBlitz.com, 24-7 Sports National Writing Desk. Carter, good afternoon, my friend. Thanks for having me, Spencer. So your reaction to Colorado uh, finalizing their uh, Board of Regents meeting earlier this afternoon, a unanimous 9 to nothing vote to return to the Big 12 after joining the Pac in 2011. Yeah, you know, initially, I think not necessarily a death sentence immediately for the Pac-12, but, uh, you know, you and I were, were, were talking off the air and said just the precedent that it sets moving forward. I mean, it, you talk about the potential for other teams to follow them, and I think that's where things get pretty hairy, um, particularly as I'm sure we'll talk about for a school like Oregon State that you know relies on the Pac-12's existence. Yeah, it, it, it just feels like, in, in, a, in a sport that is so driven in many ways by perception, momentum, narrative, discussion, every, everything, you know, the way a conference is, is framed. I mean, this is not even the, the first, uh, it's probably the worst PR the PAC has ever had since uh, it became the PAC-12. But it's not like this is the first time the PAC has ever been a, a, a punching bag, so to speak, or that they've just been low-hanging fruit for jokes on uh, sports talk radio shows and podcasts uh, across the country and whatnot, whether it's lack of visibility or not making the playoff or, you know, everything like that. Do you, do you have a sense at all at how likely the Colorado move is to snowball into other teams? I mean, I think it's certainly possible, you know, if it had been stable for a full year after UCLA and USC and, you know, we we kept wondering for a year, you know, is anyone going to follow them? Who's next? Uh, you know, who's tied to, to which conference? Um, and now you have movement again. And obviously, I think that sets the, the precedent for, for other teams to follow if, if conferences are interested. There's obvious, you know, historical ties between Colorado and the Big 12. And, you know, they're a big brand right now. So I think, you know, they were always an obvious candidate. But there are other schools in the Pac-12 that, you know, I, I think are attractive options for the Big 12, and maybe this opens the door for them to follow. Yeah, I mean, Brett Yormark's been very open about his desire to be in as many time zones as possible. And uh, look, the Pac-12 is, of course, the best place to look for that. You're not going to look to the Mountain West if you can look to the the Pac-12 first. You have bigger schools, you have bigger brands, more money, more more everything along that front. So you, you've covered Oregon State for for a good while. Do you see them at all 
sneaking into a, a potential invitation or, or, or discussions? Or do you think they're uh, completely on the outside looking in as uh, we continue this, this kind of back and forth dance uh, between the, the Pac-12 and the Big 12? I don't see it right now, just because I, I think there are other candidates that, frankly, are stronger. You know, those those four corner schools, Colorado being one of them, that have been linked to the Big 12 for years. You know, I, I think they bring a lot to the table that Oregon State doesn't, to be honest. And as an Oregon State alum and then somebody who covered Oregon State for five years, you know, obviously it's it's sad. They're not one of the top candidates, but it, the, the TV market, the um, you know the the history, the the brand size, it's it's just not at the same level as, as some of the other candidates in the in the Pac-12. So I think the only way they get in to another conference, say the Big 12, um, is is being paired with a school. You know, does the Big 12 want to have an odd number of schools? I, I guess we'll find out. We'll see if if anyone joins Colorado to even things out. But I, I feel like that is. The, the primary path for Oregon State to a different conference, uh, just because I think, again, solely going back to how much value they add to a conference uh, financially, of, of course, being the the uh, the primary factor, uh, it, it's just not there by themselves, to be, to be quite frank. I want to run this idea by you because I've had this thought about Colorado and you know why they would make this decision right now and. You know, they, they've cited stability, assurance, guarantee, safety, right? Like, they, they know what they're going to get in the Big 12. We still don't know what the media deal would look like in, in the Pac-12. We've been speculating it, you know, or speculating about it, rather, for long, longer than I can remember. It's gotten to the point where I don't even remember what happened last football season for the most part. I just kind of remember... And I don't just say that because I'm an Oregon fan, but I, <laughs> I don't remember what happened because it was so long ago. It was so many news stories and, and news cycles ago. But if you're Colorado, I think part of the reason that this makes sense, even though they wanted to be in the Pac-12, because if they'd wanted the Big 12, they could have moved any time in March, April, May, June, or any time in, in July. I think they got kind of forced into the situation by the Pac's inability to cobble together a, a media rights deal, like any media rights deal, not even a good enough deal, but any deal whatsoever. But I think this stability component ties into Deion Sanders, not because, you know, Dion necessarily wants to be in the Big 12. Maybe he does, but he can recruit whoever he wants and wherever he wants. But just kind of this sense of when you're starting a new era, you're, you're relaunching your program, you're relaunching your identity as a football team. You're trying to rebrand yourself as an athletics institution that is, you know, not just capable of packing the house to watch a bad football team, but to try to usher in a new era. You're trying to start fresh. And I think in the midst of doing that, Colorado looked at the situation on the ground and said, okay, we, we, we have to be sure that we're going to be able to be on television, to get exposure, to allow people to see the new Colorado and they weren't willing to wait any longer to take a chance on on the Pac-12 media deal. Yeah, the, the timing couldn't be better for Colorado because, uh, I mean, this is the highest Colorado stock has been probably since it joined the Pac-12. Uh, it, it had that one solid season. I you know, can't remember the win total off the top of my head, where, but they were competitive at a, a conference championship caliber. Um, and, and then in 2020 as well, you know, they, they, they won a handful of games in that shortened season. 
but outside of that, Colorado hasn't been a big brand in, in, in the Pac-12. You know, they have the history for sure, but they haven't won games. Um, and, and so to make this move now, I, I think it's, it's smart. It makes a lot of sense for Colorado. Um, there is an element, of, of course, of the Pac-12 shooting itself in the foot, not getting this media deal done. You know, we're not in these, we're not in the rooms where these conversations go down and we, we haven't seen the numbers, obviously. Um, but if it's a case of the Pac-12 dragging its feet, uh, you know, I, I think we look at, we look at it as another case of, of the Pac-12 kind of creating its own demise, um, with, with, with the delay in the media rights and, and schools like Colorado saying, Hey, you know, enough is enough. Like if, if you can't prove that you're stable, we have to move to something that is. Um, and, and that's the unfortunate part. It, it just feels like not enough actions have been taken to prevent something like this. And in some ways, it is surprising that it took this long for another school to leave. Carter Baines, BeaverBlitz.com and 24-7 Sports National Desk uh, joining me here on the Bald Face Truth. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano. So, Carter, I, I hate having to discuss this possibility, but it is a real one. Now, we don't know what, what's going to happen as as we're talking about this stuff. We don't know who else could jump. We don't know, you know, what, what else, what other moves are going to happen. Is the Big 12 going to go for one more team? And if they go for one more team, can a collection of eight pack teams cobble together a media deal and a conference and add four G5 or two group of five expansions? I, I, I don't know. But I, I wanted to ask you about the prospect of, Oregon and Oregon State one day playing in a different conference just feels wrong, frankly. It, it, it does not feel right. It does not feel like college football at its best. It's the era that we're in. It's what we could be left with. I hope that, that we are not, but it feels like, you know, that possibility had died down for quite some time when it looked like the pack had 10 schools and they would add two schools like San Diego State and SMU, which were the two most logical targets. But, you know, the Pac-12 missed the deadline on San Diego State, and they, they could add SMU at any time, which is a, a slightly different situation there with the bylaws of the American Conference. But that, that's, that's the part about it, of, of all this, that, that frustrates me the most, is just the absolute disregard for any sort of tradition, circumstance and circumstance rivalries or, or or anything like that i suppose in theory if one team ended up in one conference and one in another they could have uh, the game formerly known as the, the civil war every year in a non-conference like florida and florida state but i i would hate that because i it just it wouldn't it wouldn't feel the same yeah and these are some of the same concerns that we had this time last year when, when USC and, and UCLA announced their departure from the Pac-12, you know, obviously our, our first thought is worst case scenario. Is, is Oregon State headed to the Mountain West? Is, you know, the, the tradition as we know it disrupted in the Pac-12? And, and to an extent, that is true because you have the L.A. schools gone and, and now obviously Colorado gone now too. Um, a, a lot of this concerns that we had then, I think dwindled a bit just because it looked like stability was coming. But as it became more and more clear that the conference wasn't going to be able to get this done in a timely manner, um, you know, things started to, to kind of bubble to the surface again. And, and now with another um, actionable change being taken by one of the, uh, the member schools, uh, those concerns for the Oregon schools and particularly for Oregon state, I think are, are realistic again. You know, it's, if the Pac-12, 
God forbid, does fold, what happens to a school like Oregon State, who we have kind of established isn't a primary candidate for these other conferences? Where does Oregon land? You know, the, the Big Ten didn't add Oregon along with the L.A. schools. Is Oregon destined for the Big 12 at some point? It's it's all of these unknowns, and you can't help but but feel concerned that the worst-case scenario is, is a legitimate possibility, which I think is scary for some of the smaller market schools in, in, in the Pac-12. Do you think that if, if you're a fan of any remaining, what are we, the Pac-9 now? <laughs> that doesn't sound right, but that's what it is. So of the nine remaining PAC schools is perhaps the rosier way to express the state of the conference. Can you feel like the PAC is a desirable place to be? Like, like, are you able to wrap your head around, hey, without Colorado, USC, and UCLA, the PAC is still a place where, you know, my team, my program can accomplish its goals? on the football field. Do you think that going forward? I think so. Um, at Colorado as, as you know, much hype and, and momentum as it has right now. Um, frankly, as I said earlier, this isn't a program that on the field has competed at a high level very often True. Uh, in the conference. So, you know, you're, you're not losing a premier program in that regard. Um, I'm sure if Colorado fans are listening, they're going to, you know, they're going to take offense to that or take objection to it. But I mean, if we're being real, they just have it. So, um, you know, in, in that regard, it doesn't change a whole lot. But again, it's it's the momentum of it all. It's the, the precedent that it sets for other schools potentially leaving um, that, that makes it so concerning. Now, you know, for other schools looking to join, I, I think it still is more attractive than say, a Mountain West or an American conference. Um, It still has a lot to offer academically, athletically, financially, um, that that frankly, those group of five conferences still can't can't match. Um, So I do think there is something to be said for the opportunity presented for a a San Diego State and SMU. Um, But now, obviously, you're going to have to look for a third, fourth, or even fifth uh, smaller, you know, smaller conference program to bring in and um, the, the, the pickings get kind of slim at that point, you know, to be honest, we, we've talked about candidates for the last year, it feels like, and, you know, the two that have emerged have, have been SDSU and, and SMU as, as being potential value adds and competitive programs and programs that can build off of um, the additional resources. But I mean, finding programs that that fit the Pac-12 mold becomes a lot harder when you have to start looking for more of them, to be honest. So it it certainly does. And, you know, what I wonder about is with with the Pac-12 having fumbled this entire situation again, which has just become standard operating procedure, unfortunately, no matter who we've had as commissioner for the last uh, 15 years or so, or since the Pac-12 became the Pac-12 in 2011 is, any potential Mountain West school, Carter, would have to be probably 2025 unless they could get $34 million or to you know pay the exit fee because we're past June 30th from the Mountain West. Or the Mountain West would have to allow them to leave for a lower amount. But I don't know why the Mountain West would do that because that wouldn't be in, in their best interests. But the well, last thing I want to run by you is I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that you can add just SMU, whose timeline hasn't changed, 
in terms of you know how much it'll cost them to leave the conference. You you could add just SMU to be at ten for twenty twenty four, and then for twenty twenty five and beyond. You know, starting in that football season, you have San Diego State, and then insert insert next school. I I would love a Boise or a Fresno State, but it appears that academically the, the PAC is not going to budge on either of those particular schools, even though their athletics are certainly up to, up to the smell test. But uh, I, what, what, what do you think of that idea? Yeah, I think that's probably the most logical step forward, but you throw logic out the window when you talk about the PAC 12, unfortunately, but it creating the stability by getting an SMU in and getting the 10 uh, for 2024, I, I think that is the bare minimum. You know, you can't go into that season with nine or or eight or, you know, seven or whatever it becomes if, if more schools leave. Now, the problem with, as you mentioned, adding more schools is you are going to have to wait for 2025 because uh, we already saw what happened with the San Diego State situation this offseason. You know, they, they somewhat ask out of the Mountain West. You know, the Mountain West says they asked out. They say they didn't. Um, and it, it just became this this battle between the, the conferences of, of of San Diego State and the Mountain West of, hey, you know, you're leaving. You owe us this much money. Well, no, we're not leaving. And it was all because the Pac-12 didn't have a media deal. And and so regardless of, of adding these schools and the timeline in which they do them and the order and, and which season, there's still no media rights deal. And that is precisely what Colorado is leaving. That's exactly why we're talking about the Pac-12 needing to add teams. It, it is a mess that I I lose more and more confidence every day that the Pac-12 is going to be able to fix. And here I was thinking 36 hours ago we'd be talking about actual football today. Carter Baines, BeaverBlitz.com, 24-7 Sports. Carter, thank you so much. Thanks, Spencer. The Big Splash is coming up next right here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth. 750 of the game. Judah and Steven with me in the studio as well. And, you know, it, it feels like we could miss news just just talking right now, right here. Like all of this stuff. I've just been sitting at my computer all day since I woke up, going on shows, recording shows, getting ready for this, and just and just following the news just kind of all day. And look, the, the Pac-12, uh, you know, board, CEO group, athletic directors, uh, Canzano reported that they're uh, meeting sometime today to talk about their options, which are not humongously plentiful, shall we say. I think the most feasible one, or at least a, a feasible one, in, in my view, is you add SMU to get to 10 teams in 2024, and then you can look at San Diego State plus insert other expansion candidate. Uh, there, there are a lot of different ways they could go to Lane, Colorado State, Memphis. I wish they would go Boise and or Fresno State, but I, I don't, I, I rarely get what I want in the uh, college, college sports world. So that's just kind of the way that it goes. But let's talk about the big splash that you need to hear. Dan Lanning has been extended and given a raise by the University of Oregon. They met earlier today, the Board of Trustees, formally approved the raise for Oregon's soon-to-be second-year head coach, former Georgia defensive coordinator, 10-3 and three in year one. I know that it stings a lot of Oregon fans. He lost to the Beavs and the Huskies, and it can kind of 
make something that is really, really good, a 10-3 and three season, seem not, not quite so good, but a bowl game victory uh, to end the year in the Holiday Bowl against North Carolina. What a game that was uh, last season as well. But he's gotten quite, quite the bump up here, and Oregon's really making a commitment to Dan Lanning as their guy. No matter where they end up playing their games, and we can speculate from now until a move actually happens as to where Oregon will end up and why they would want to be there and the benefits and the perks and yada, yada, yada and such. But Dan Lanning's salary going into this year under his original contract was slated to be about $4.7 million, and it was scheduled to go up a little bit year by year, which it still will under the new extension to the contract that uh, that he has signed in the University of Oregon approved from $4.7 million to $7 million, which makes him tied for the 15th highest paid coach in the country along with Kirk Ferentz over at uh, Iowa, which I didn't know that he made that much, but he has been there for quite a long time. Uh, and also Brent Venables at Oklahoma. The contract reportedly goes up by 200000 a year in base salary every year through 2028. There are incentives for winning 10 or more regular season games, conference championships, college football playoff appearances, all of that I think is pretty standard for for a coaching contract. But Judah, the, the thing that stands out to me the most in in this deal is that the buyout has has increased by a pretty solid amount. And if another school, be it SEC, ACC, Big Ten, whoever, if somebody wanted to hire Dan Lanning as their head football coach, it's going to cost them a lot of money in the buyout. Is in the is in the ballpark somewhere of like twenty ish million dollars is what I've seen. Yeah, it's almost like uh, Oregon's been burned on that before. <laughs> that they don't want to get burned again by one of their own uh, getting poached by somebody. Obviously, you know Willie going to FSU, Mario doing the Miami deal. They weren't going to let that happen this time, and it's, they didn't want it to happen last time either. But this does seem uh, pretty darn prohibitive for anyone to to um, you know take Dan Lanning from him. What do you think, man, Spencer? Like, is this warranted? Was this was this deserved for Lanning? Like, is this a measure that Rob Mullins needed to take? You know, the buyout figure being what it is, but also the salary increase. Is he just that darn good of a recruiter that it it warrants this kind of security? Well, I think the recruiting is is a sizable component to this because I, I would say the on-field results have been quite good and the recruiting results have been pretty great. He's pulled in he pulled in the top ten class in twenty twenty three. When he got there, you know, beginning of twenty twenty two, snagged Josh Connerly, number one offensive tackle in the country in his class, slated probably to be Oregon starting left tackle heading into uh, this season. The class currently has had a, a couple of misses on five stars or they haven't been able to close the deal on Justin Williams and Elijah Rushing, a pair of five-star defensive players in 2024. They lost out on them to Arizona and, and, and to Georgia, but the class is still number 12 nationally. But I, I do wonder you know, how much this is in, in part because of what we've seen in the past and that the early results are good enough. Like I, I wasn't expecting this to come about. I think you could have very easily justified, you know, keeping the the contract that was in place until Lanning at least got to a conference championship game or won a conference championship. That's typically when coaches get, you know, an, an extension or a raise. But, you know, it, it can be uh, a non-championship season that's warranting that as well. Kalen DeBoer at Washington, for, for instance. But 
I, I also wonder, Judah, if it's the the evolving and changing landscape of college football and all this conference realignment we're talking about. If if Oregon is looking around saying, look, we, we don't know what's going to happen over here. We would like to have this on lockdown, and we've seen enough to say, okay, we, we want to make him one of the 15 highest paid coaches in college football. I think that's exactly what's, what's going on. Is the, the uncertainty is enough to make anybody feel anxious. And I don't know if Rob Mullins or Phil Knight have a clear answer right now as, as to what they want to do conference-wise. But the one thing they do know is they're like, all right, what do we have going for us? Yeah. I think our head coach is an asset. Let's make sure he knows that. And even though we've, you know, he lost to the Beavs and the Huskies in year one, three biggest games of the year, he lost them all. It's a little harsh, but still, that's what happened. Let's go, go ahead and raise this guy up by $4 million. And, Steven, I don't, I don't know, man. Are you... Are you in the same boat that I am where it's like it's a little bit of a, of a strange salary bump, you know, given the uh, given the sizable losses last year? But is it something you have to do given the uncertainty? Well, the recruiting is there, right? Like, I think you guys touched it. The recruiting is there. But the on-field, I still have questions about. I mean, he's supposed to be this defensive coach. The Ducks were 123rd in opponent's third down conversion last year. And that's what lost of the Washington game we saw last year in the Civil War. That's They lost the game, and all the Beavers did was run the football in the second half. I, I have questions about the Oregon off or Oregon defense with Dan Lanning still. And I think this is going to be a big year for him, you know, with you know going down to Texas tech down in Lubbock, that's going to be a tricky game in week two. I think there's a lot to prove with Dan Lanning, but it's the type of guy where he's so young and he seems like he wants to be in Oregon. Like you got to take the risk and you got to give him a contract. It was a little early for the extension, but I can see why they did it. Yeah. I, I, I think a tad early perhaps, but the shifting ground is what drove you to do it. And I think you've seen, if you're Rob Mullins, just enough to say, okay, we, we, we can make this happen. We can make this, uh, this sort of commitment. But the questions on the defensive side of the ball, I mean, those need to be answered this year. Because I, I thought Oregon's defense would be better than it was a season ago, but they have revamped their roster in a significant way, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And if you're landing defense coordinator, Tosh Lupoy, got to be able to answer those questions. Hour two of the Bald Face Truths. Radio Network coming up after this. Now, built by high caliber millwrights. In for John Canzano, here's Spencer McLaughlin with the ball face truth. Hour two on this Thursday afternoon. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Plenty of news in the college sports world to get to. Had Carter Baines of Beaver Blitz on. Earlier, let's bring on Eric Scopel, 24-7 Sports, the Austin Audible's podcast on the line. Eric, how are things over in your land? Uh, it's been busy, Spencer. <laughs> it's been busy. <laughs> Certainly a lot going on the last couple of days, but uh, hey, that's part of the fun. It is, you know, part of the fun at, at some level. On the other hand, I was going to play golf this morning. At least that was my plan 48 hours ago. That plan got nipped in the bud pretty uh Pretty quickly, when when Colorado decided to to leave. So, your your take on whether or not the pack can, uh, frankly, just continue to exist in in light of the the, the Colorado news, and as we just kind of sit here waiting every single moment with, I mean, maybe more defections coming, maybe not. We don't really know, but we're certainly in in wait and see mode uh, as to how all of this all this shakes out. Yeah, I'm probably more skeptical in the last 24 hours than I have been, and I'm, I'm trying not alone, than I have been throughout the whole process of realignment of, of kind of what the future for this conference holds. And just sentiment, sentimentally, that's disappointing. That's sad. I mean, I'm 
34 years old. I've been a big fan of college sports and big fan of Pac-12 sports in particular for multiple decades and to potentially see this league folding or not operating in anywhere near the same capacity as it has is, is kind of a shock to the system and, and disappointing. Um, and I guess I just would say, I, I, I think, I think it seems unlikely Colorado is the only shoe to drop. It just would be my read on it. And if that's the case, and this number gets down to seven or eight or six schools, I don't, I don't really see a path to viability. And, and that's where a school like Oregon makes a lot of sense to, uh, and I, I'm not saying they haven't already, but makes a lot of sense to peek around a little bit more aggressively. Um, I, I don't don't have any reporting on that, that that's something that's in the works. I think, you know, logically it makes sense that there is interest from Oregon and Washington, the two big brands in the conference still, to try to land on their feet as best they can right now. But these are uncertain times, and, you know, it, there, there is a level of, irony to the fact that Colorado, who was probably the worst football program, at least during the, the time they've been in the conference, and Arizona, who it sounds like is another one of the schools that's peeking around at the Big 12, um, are two of the schools that maybe are what ultimately kind of leveled the death knell on the conference, considering those are, again, those are two of kind of the bottom feeders, but do you understand why there's urgency for everybody, regardless of if you're at the top of a conference, the middle, the bottom, to to try to find the best position possible. And, and for, for a lot of these schools, it makes sense clearly based upon what they're hearing from Pac-12 and the possible media rights deal that there's more stability elsewhere. And if that's the case for Colorado and maybe Arizona and others, I would imagine that ultimately that's going to be the case for the rest of the league too, which again, kind of saddens me to say. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting to to try and play it out because I think when, you, you talk in, in, in generalities and look, everyone on planet Earth right now, I think is guilty of this of, you know, oh, well, you know, Arizona is not going or Colorado won't be the only one. Arizona will will follow. Well, is the Big 12 then going to take everybody else? Could could an 18 pack cobble together enough G5 schools or could they just go find two of them to, you know, add for 2024 and beyond and then add two more in, in the future and continue to exist or let, let, let's say Arizona is the next domino to fall. Let's say that drops tomorrow, just as, as a hypothetical. If Arizona sure. were, were to leave, what, what would Utah, which has been adamant as an administration, university, Mark Harlan, their athletic director, has been one of the, the lone vocal voices in the pack consistently throughout the process that has been you know, pretty anti-Big 12. And I've heard that they're you know, steadfast in that commitment to want to be in the pack. If Arizona then goes, would would Utah and Arizona State suddenly hop on board? But would they be welcomed in ahead of Oregon and and Washington? And then are Oregon State and Washington State left out to you know the Mountain West or the American or would, and then Stanford and Cal are just like there's still a lot of pieces that would have to fall. And I think the question that it would probably come down to is how willing is the Big Twelve to go beyond? you know, they're at 13 schools with Colorado. Are they willing to go not just to 16, but to, but, but to 18, frankly, because of the number of schools that would be, that would be left over in the pack. All the questions that you just ran through are questions that are running through everybody in this region's head right now. And it is, frankly, it's a mess, right? I mean, there's so much to consider. There are so many hypotheticals. There's, there's so many reports. Who knows? You know, I'm not going to question the viability of the individuals doing the reporting, but who knows how much of the messaging is really accurate to conversations that are happening behind the scenes. 
Um, you know, is 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 there a, an individual suggesting one thing to potentially point a negative light on the other? You know, on the other side of the things, of course. I, I'm sure that's taking place. And and to your point, yeah, I, I think I think the question is is how how does this all play out? And I know that's really simplistic, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a simple conclusion to this. Is I guess is my answer. It, it doesn't feel like it's just going to be, hey, the Big Twelve and the Pac Twelve are going to unofficially merge, and you know, there's going to be a super twenty team conference there, and it's going to be, hey, it's most of the the old teams from the Pac Twelve now mixing with a lot of the uh, older members of the Big Twelve. That that seems probably a little over romanticized in my part. That it's going to be that simple, but I also don't know really what the I mean, I, I have an idea of what the alternatives are, but the alternatives for like a school like Oregon, say, I mean, if the alternative is stay in the Pac-12 at a at an even more discounted media rights deal and rate than what you'd get in the Big 12, then you wouldn't want to sign on for that. And I, of course, if you're Oregon and Washington, the fact that you've been, at least in the past, I know there's been reporting even in the last week or so that the Big 10 is pretty comfortable standing pat with their current members, but that's obviously where Oregon and Washington probably would like to go if that's an option. And so, yeah, what, what, what does a school like Oregon do hypothetically if, you know, there's an offer made, and I'm, I'm sure there's been a communication already with Oregon and, and the Big 12, or at least an understanding of what that might look like. Is there, does it make sense even for a school like Oregon to join the Big 12 if ultimately it wants to go to another school? That feels like you're, you're getting married to somebody with the idea that you actually want to be with another partner, but they're in a relationship somewhere else or are not interested right now. Right. It feels weird. So um, I'm with you. There's, it's a mess. There's so much going on. It's hard to know what, to, what's true, what's not true, or even if something is true, will it be true later? Um, and to your point, I, and the one I made earlier, I really don't think it's going to be as simple as, Hey, these two school these leagues are basically going to merge. I, I think ultimately Probably there will be other schools that end up in the Big 12, and probably there will be schools that are formerly from the Pac-12 who end up elsewhere. Um, but it's really, really hard to, to kind of speak with any level of confidence about how any of this will play out. And, and frankly, I guess the other thing I'm curious on is just the timeline of all of this. How expedited does this become? Like, are are we looking at a thing where not only uh, is the Pac-12 could, could the Pac-12 like cease to exist by 2024 or 2025? Like, is is it that fast, or are we looking at maybe there's going to be some kind of in-between years where there's a really a smaller conference that has some of these traditional Pac-10, Pac-12 schools? I don't know, but I know that the ult- the ultimate outcome of this is going to probably feel um, a lot different than what expectations were about a year ago when USC and UCLA um, kind of pulled the chairs out from everybody uh, and joined the Big Ten. Eric Scopel, 24-7 Sports in Duck Territory. Go check out uh, his stuff. Joining me here on the Bald Face Truth, Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano. So for the school that uh, that you cover, Eric, that being Oregon, and you know, where, where they could end up, where, where they should want to end up, it's no secret that Oregon's goal right now and Phil Knight's goal is to win a national championship on the football field. That's what he wants to do. That's what he stated he wants to do. That's what the the program wants to do. Going forward, let's say the pack is able to somehow put duct tape on the Titanic and plug enough holes. And hey, look, if they do that, more power to them and such, because it's you know seeming more and more of a of a dire situation. But they're meeting and talking about it right now, so we'll just see how that all plays out. But if they're able to do that, do you think the pack is a place where Oregon can accomplish? those goals or do you think that recruiting could take a hit because they're 
because they're in the pack. And look, Colorado with, with Dion might have been more of a recruiting competitor, but still, I feel like Oregon is able to recruit in the pack regardless and recruit against USC and UCLA for California kids in the pack no matter what. Maybe not with more defections if the league's perception takes another hit, but can Oregon's goals be accomplished in the pack going forward if the nine remaining schools stay committed and they you know, continue with the league in whatever form it may take? I think that what the media rights deal ends up being is really critical to all of that. Um, I don't have, I don't disagree at all that I think Oregon can sustain success, probably almost in any conference it's in in the nation, um, just based upon the amount of support, um, the, the the tradition it's built. The, I mean, this has become a program that has a big national brand, and I don't think that just vanishes because you're in a lesser conference. A school like Clemson can can kind of speak to that. My 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 big concern, and speaking specifically about recruiting wouldn't be as much in the short term because I think Oregon is going to continue to recruit well. And while they wait for the media rights deals to kick in elsewhere and all that money to kind of, you know, fall, fall into place at all these schools, like there, there will be a period here where I don't have any doubts. Oregon can be very competitive on the recruiting trail. We haven't mentioned it. And probably the first time I'm sure we'll get to it eventually, they just signed up their head coach for an extension, gave him a lot of money, gave him competitive comp- compensation to make it at least, a difficult decision for a bigger school to come in and try to pry him away if they wanted to, hypothetically. Um, my concern is just is, is the long term. Is is we get if you get if Oregon stays in a conference where I don't even want to throw out a hypothetical, but if the if the media rights deal if they're being making tens of twenties of thirties of millions less than the schools are competing with to try to win a national championship, that really makes it difficult like just point blank to, to to try to really expect to recruit at the same level. I mean, and that's where college sports and professional sports, I guess with the exception of major league baseball, where there's no real salary cap, like th- that's, that's kind of where it differs where, I mean, you, you could be looking at a spot here where, where Oregon is a really competitive football brand yet is 20, 30, $40 million behind what schools and other conferences are that they're competing for recruits. And while that might not be a deciding factor on an individual basis, because you might be able to pitch them on, hey, you can come dominate this conference and maybe it's an easier path to the college football playoff. I think ultimately you're going to be at a deficit with resources, which makes it really difficult to be as effective and consistent as a recruiting uh, brand. So that would be my concern more is, is again, and this is the whole thing all along. Is I, I've said some from the start, like it, I, I'd love for the Pac-12 Pac-10, whatever you want to refer to it as, how many ever teams are in it. Pac-9, we've got nine left. Yeah. We're like we're like Pac-9 a cat. We have nine happen. lives. <laughs> like I'd love for it to exist, but I, I I also think legitimately, if you if you really want to be honest with yourself and you look at the potential financial ramifications of of that kind of a financial deficit compared to your competition over a four or five decade long period, it adds up and becomes pretty easy to see a path where Oregon not only falls behind other schools out west if they're if you know if, if let's say the big 12 and the big 10 are, are, are really far ahead but also fall kind of out of the realm of it being a major possibility to compete for for national championship aspirations which obviously is what their goal is at so do, do you not feel at all that you know, as as other conferences will obviously continue to outpace the pack and even before the, the colorado announcement which i don't know if it changes the calculus entirely but usc and ucla certainly do from a media rights valuation standpoint, do you not feel that Phil Knight can be kind of the equalizer for Oregon in that sense, in the resources and keeping up with 
NIL and, you know, facilities and great visits and, and, and everything like that? I think that's a lot to put on one person. Um, and I think it's a little un- maybe a little unfair for me to and for others to just expect someone else to spend at that level. I mean, obviously, Phil's been incredibly generous to the University of Oregon. I, I don't have the total, but it's it's got to be a billion north in terms of total, uh, you know, dollars donated to athletic and academic resources. So he's already been extremely generous. Does he have a lot more to spend potentially? Absolutely. I mean, he's, despite giving away and being so generous with his money, his, his net worth is, is increasing, not decreasing. So sure. Is there a pathway to that? Possibly. I just think it's a lot to ask to, 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 to I guess, rely on that. And especially for, for how long, I mean, I don't also want to get too morbid, but he's not going to live forever. And ultimately, I mean, could he, leave some massive endowment that would make Oregon competitive past the point of, you know, when he passes possibly. But I just think for me, that's, that's, I'm not discounting that possibility or that fact. Cause I, I think there could be some, some truth to the fact that yeah, Oregon maybe could be at a, again, a running behind the rest of the schools it's competing with um, in terms of the media rights deal. And some of that could get supplemented by the generosity of, of Phil Knight, which by the way, it sounded to bring it back to the Dan Lanning part, you know, reading between the lines from what Rob Mullins, the athletic director, said today, it sounds like a, a much, it, it, you know, maybe all or, or close to all of that came from what he described as philanthropy from from donors. So um, I wouldn't, I mean, certainly wouldn't discount Oregon from being competitive along those lines. I just think that's kind of a lot to ask of, again, one person who has already been extremely generous. I know his buy-in with Oregon sports is, is through the roof, and he cares more than probably – you, myself, those around the program, everybody listening, just because of how much she's already proven there. But um, I just, I just think that's maybe too much. Speaking of Dan Lanning, who uh, you mentioned, he got a contract extension and a raise. He's now one of the 15 highest-paid coaches in the country, tied with Brent Venables and Kirk Ferentz at uh, Oklahoma and Iowa. It runs an extra year from its original contract through 2028. The buyout is big. The, the contract is big. I, I I look at it and say they're paying Dan Lanning in the way that they are expecting him to perform, that the university and fans expect him to perform. I and mean, I'm sure that they believe he is capable of, though we haven't seen, I think, uh, the, the best of Dan Lanning as Oregon's head football coach at, at this point in time. What was your reaction to the contract? I like the way you, you framed it there, Spencer, of, of uh, that they're paying for – what the expectation will be in terms of performance, because I would agree. Um, I think a lot of people's reactions I've seen on social media, on our website, have kind of been like, wow, it was just one year. And now you're giving an, you know, an annual $2.5 million bump basically um, in, in, a, in a deal that you know, adds another year. Has he proven enough to really deserve that? And I think clearly the answer internally, and from those that make these decisions, we just mentioned one of the people who I think was probably pretty clearly involved in that, is 100% yes. And I don't think you make this sort of a commitment if the answer is, ah, it's kind of wishy-washy, we're not sure. And there's a lot of things that kind of stood out from the way, I guess, um, Rob Mullins presented this. I think one of the things that that stood out was, you know, regarding the, the $20 million buyout, which, by the way, is significantly more than what was in the original contract, which I think started as a $14 million buyout and then descended all the way down to after his fifth year, it only cost a million dollars. That was the previous language. Now it's 20, I think, across the board through the duration. But some of the language that, that Rob shared, I thought was interesting talking about how 
even though it's just been one year, and Rob Mullins has been Oregon's athletic director for quite some time, he says he's not sure there's been this sort of community, you know, commitment and commitment kind of locally from a head football coach since back in the Mike Bellotti, Rich Brooks days, which which predate his time at Oregon, by the way. So I, I think it speaks to the fact that, I mean, Rob's basically saying we haven't had somebody in this position since I've been here, and he's been here since Chip and Mark and all those guys were here, that's that's really seems committed and, and kind of invested the way that Dan Lanning has proven to be. And I think given what's happened the last couple of times with, with head coaches that have left abruptly with um, maybe a lack of stability in the conference, they're like, hey, let's get some stability at least with the head football coach. Yep. I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, Oregon's been – this will be the if he lasts more than four years, it'll be the first time since Mike Bellotti, a head football coach, has done that at Oregon. That's just not something that's been reality. So I get it for a variety of reasons. Do I think Dan Lanning still has a lot to prove as a head football coach at Oregon? A million percent. I think Dan would say as much. I think he already probably has said as much publicly. Um, so I guess I'm not overly surprised because kind of as you said to start, I, I think they're paying for what they are thinking this is going to be two, three, four, five years down the line. But I understand why fans are maybe saying, hey, can we can we win 12 games? Can we win the conference? Can we beat one of our rivals before we dole out the big the big money? Um, but I think in today's college football climate, and especially where Oregon finds itself, this makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah, and I, I think that the evolving landscape and uncertainty and the also the, the recent history with, you know, Mario and Willie, uh, leaving the school when uh, when they did after one and four years respectively. If you don't have that, I'm not sure that this you know like the the ten and three season was was a good year. But as everybody knows, you lost to Washington, you lost to Oregon State in a pretty ugly fashion in in both of those games. Just an inability to adjust on Dan Lanning's side of the ball. That being the the defense, but I think that all those factors kind of came together that led them to believe, okay, this is a decision that. Uh, that that we have to make right now, and that we that we should make to just find stability. When people are in chaos, they're they're always seeking stability, right? And everything feels very chaotic and hectic and all over the place. Um, and, and so I I think it makes sense from uh from that standpoint. Eric Scopel, twenty four seven Sports, Duck Territory, the Odds and Audibles podcast. Eric, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Absolutely, Spencer. Big fan of your work. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. We'll be taking your calls here next on the Bald Face Truth. Truth Radio Network. Welcome back in. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth. Let's hit the phone lines, shall we? 503-417-7575 is the number to call. We have Ken in Gresham. Ken, good afternoon. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my calls. Hey, um, a couple things first. The Huskies, as much as I hate them, and uh, the Ducks, they're not going to go anywhere. Phil wants a natty. The best way to get into the the 12 playoff where the money is, is through uh, the Pac-10, the Pac-12, the Pac-9, whatever. Um, Can you imagine all the marketing and the uh, Nike commercials uh, that's going to happen when uh, the Ducks wind up in the college football playoff and in the championship game? Unreal, unreal. And then you got to think about the Buffaloes and why, why they did what they did. You know, Coach Prime, He's not stupid. He knows that on a consistent basis, he's not going to beat the Huskies. He's not going to beat the Ducks. He's probably not going to beat the Beavers. Every once in a while, UCLA is going to pop up. So is it easier for him and his football program and his replacement after he leaves fairly quickly 
to beat Cincinnati, to beat Houston, to beat Texas Tech, so he can get into the playoffs. That's what this is about. Nothing else. So, well, I I think that's that that that's an interesting thought. Now you mentioned UCLA in there. You have to remember that they're leaving the pack and going to the Big Ten along with with USC. And I I don't think that. You know, on the one hand, you, you can say that Oregon's got the best access to the playoff in the pack, but Colorado has that in uh, the Big 12. Now, I, I think the Big 12 is not as uh, strong at the top as the pack going forward without the big schools. So take out USC and UCLA, which have a combined one Pac-12 football conference championship between them, by the way. Take out Texas and Oklahoma, which have a bevy of them. I, I see your point there that the Big 12 might be a little bit easier but I think that Colorado you know the way that I talked about them with with Deion Sanders at the helm is look if you recruit in college football at a top 20 level for several years in a row especially in a conference that isn't known for having a bunch of great recruiting programs I mean you have Oregon and then you know Washington and Stanford can both get in the top 20 as well but that's kind of it you know, Utah's never cracked the top 20 with their recruiting class, but for maybe one time under uh, Kyle Whittingham, Colorado was poised to be a team that could at least start to push the envelope to get near the top. Because Colorado was just going to have to out-scheme Oregon State. Now, that's a very difficult thing to do because Jonathan Smith is a great coach. But in three years' time, you would have more composite talent on your roster in, in Colorado with Dion and probably will when they're in the Big 12 would have been the same if they'd stayed in the pack than Oregon State is going to have because that's just the reality of recruiting at those particular places. So I think USC and UCLA leaving created a void and Colorado could have been one of those programs, would have been one of them that was, you know, no pun intended, primed to kind of enter into it and try to get into that upper echelon of top teams that could, you know, be a conference contender, make a playoff run and all that sort of stuff. But I think the programs at the top, um, you know, I, I don't know how much the playoff consideration could really be there for Colorado with this move. I think it is about stability and ushering in the Deion Sanders era, knowing what they're going to have from a television standpoint. So I, I think that that is what ultimately drove them. That's what they're saying, and I believe them on that front. When they say, look, we needed the stability and the assurance as we try to start this new era of, of Colorado football and try to you know, rebrand ourselves as, as a program and try to put behind what you know, has existed in the past for, for quite a long time. And as you look at the remaining brands, you have, I think, better high-end ones in, in the pack with Oregon, Washington, and Utah that are all playoff caliber. You know, Utah has come within one game of doing that in the four-team era. Washington and Oregon have both been there, of course. Whereas in uh, the Big 12, PCU had a magical season and they got there, but I don't think anybody expects them to be able to stay at that sort of level. But I think you do have a lot of teams that you have to climb over. I mean, Cincinnati's the team we saw go to the playoff. And Heck, I've seen Iowa State be a good team before, and you've got Texas Tech that's doing a lot that is going to give Oregon quite a game in week two. Uh, by the way, down there in in Lubbock, Oregon is a very very small favorite in that game as as they should be. So I think it was more about the holistic view of the university. You know, I'm sure Deion Sanders had a voice in the room, but presidents are the ones that primarily drive realignment, and I think that they that they ultimately decided that look, this is going to be the best way to, to kind of jumpstart the relaunch and restart of our program with, uh, with, with Dion at the helm, if that makes sense. Spencer, let me ask you a question here real quick. 
about Coach Prime in Colorado. Yeah. I feel like Coach Prime had so much to do with the, them going to the Big 12. That's why he didn't want to go to Pac-12 Media Day. He almost, you know, big timed it. Me and Judah talked about this a little bit. Do you think that? Well, happened? he was. I mean, he was having surgery on his foot. That but, that that had been going. That had been he, going on for a long time. He also had a video on Instagram like two days later where he was working. He seemed fine. You could have you could have organized and scheduled that surgery at any point. I feel like. Do, do you think? That Dion had a bigger part in this move to to the Big Twelve to be part of Texas and be down there, and that he never really had any interest in the Pac twelve. You even look at like the interview John did with Shadour, how he just came off uninterested. I feel like Dion had so much to do with this move to Colorado to the Big Twelve because he just wants to be part of Texas. He wants to be closer, you know, to that that's where his recruiting ground is. That's where he wants to be. He doesn't want to be on the Pacific Coast. So as to Dion's desire to be in the Big 12, I don't think he would be recruiting-oriented. I, I think it would be more towards what Ken was, was talking about, which is you don't have you know teams that could – like right now if I told you without Texas and Oklahoma, who's running the Big 12 in football? It, it's the wild, wild west. So he may have felt that they have a better chance over there than they did to try to overcome Utah two-time defending champs, Oregon that's won – three and technically four, so we'll call it three and a half Pac-12 titles in, you know, because they won in the COVID year. And then uh, Washington that has won, I think, two or three uh, Pac-12 championships uh, as well and been to the playoff. That might have been a part of it, but from a recruiting standpoint, it, he's, he's Dion. He doesn't need to be in a conference that is based in the Midwest to recruit Texas. He doesn't need to be in a conference that has East Coast reach to recruit Florida. Dion is the recruiting pitch. Anywhere that he goes now or in the future in his career, he's going to be able to recruit whatever player he wants. Look at the guys that he brought to Colorado, not the ones from Jackson State like Travis Hunter, Shadur Sanders, who were blue chip prospects that, you know, he got to Jackson State. First of all, I mean, obviously Shadur, you know, went to go play for his, his dad and whatnot, but a guy like Travis Hunter, he goes to play for Dion. He doesn't go to play for Jackson State, goes to play for Dion. He gets a guy like Cormani McLean that Miami was after. A lot of people listening to the show right now, very aware of the recruiting prowess of Mario Cristobal. He wanted Cormani McLean. I'm pretty sure Cormani was a, a Florida kid, five-star recruit. He went to go play for Dion. So if Coach Prime had a desire to be in the Big 12, I think it was football-related, the way Ken was uh, you know, indicating. I don't think it was recruiting-based because – he is his own brand. He knows how to play the media. He knows how to talk to players. He knows how to do everything that he wants to do to accomplish the goal of getting Dion's brand out there. So I can't see him sitting there thinking, I don't know how I can recruit Texas if I'm not in the Big 12. I don't, I don't think he was particularly worried about that. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, I just, you know, I think a little, I just feel like he never really wanted to be at Pac 12 Media Day in the first place and then to have it come out, you know, a day before. That he's, you know, he was the headline. Everybody wanted to hear from Coach Prime. Everyone wanted to see him. And then it was just taken, you know, the rug just taken out from under everybody. It, it just, it rubbed me the wrong way. 
and then just the way that their players came across as well, like just seemed. Wait, Stephen, Stephen, hold on. Are you saying that Coach Prime rubbed you the wrong way? You that has to be Co a first. I love Coach Prime. That's my guy, dude. I'm all in on Colorado. <laughs> they're going over their win total. You you said Vegas is wrong. I think you're wrong, man. They're going over the win total. I, I got them at four. I got them at four or five, but uh, I think they'll be a little bit better. I, I I think they win one of their first. You think five? So I think five at the high end. I think they win. I think five. I think I'd give them. I I I would be more open to that idea. If they had Washington State or UCLA schedule yeah, or the, Oregon State, the but they have Colorado schedule. Schedule is brutal, man, and I, I think they get one of the wins over TCU or Nebraska. That that's where I think they get to the over the win total. Is I well, that means you, that means you think they're beating Nebraska? Yeah, because they're not beating TCU. I, I think the Matt Rule thing, uh, it will take a little bit to get going there in Nebraska. They'll be fine, but year one, I think I think Colorado can pull that off because they got the skill positions. It's all about you know the offense and defensive line, just the depth, the lack of depth they have there. But well, this, yeah, and those but, position groups don't matter. Yeah, they don't matter. They don't so know, that's but, okay. Yeah, but, yeah. But the skill guys, you know, Shadur, the way he gets it out quickly, you know, you watch him play, he can get the ball out quickly and get it out to those guys. I think they got some playmakers. I think they can, you know, at least compete with some teams and look at some couple wins this year. The, the one thing I'd add on, on Coach Prime, and, you know, Steven, Steven is much more bullish on Colorado on the field this year than I am, but I'm a lot more cynical about Coach Prime, too. Like, I agree. I think, I think not showing up to Pac-12 Media Day had a lot more to do with the background stuff than it had to do the actual surgery. And like, I, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, but I don't, I don't trust that guy. No, no way that he's being transparent with, with the surgery stuff. And that could be just the cynical side of me, completely. My opinion. I am not taking his word for it. That he just had to get the surgery the day before. Well, knowing what we know now, I don't think you're, <laughs> you're completely off the reservation here. Like, I, I don't think that that is an outlandish hot take, just trying to take a jab at Dion. I think going into Pac-12 media days, it might have been. But now that Colorado's literally left the conference, it, it could it could have been. It's impossible to know. They're never going to talk about that. And, you know, I don't think that any reporter cares about that in a, in a significant way uh, enough enough to ask. But knowing what we know now, I think you can look back and say, hey, yeah, maybe they were overblown out of touch and they decided to schedule it on that day. Because remember – a lot of these indications have been the Pac-12 was caught off guard and they met on what Monday or Tuesday and everybody said they were committed and there was no indication or anything like that. And then boom, do you, do you, buy, that, do you buy that Spencer that George Klyovkov was caught off guard again, not only by USC and UCLA, but now this time by Colorado. Cause the reports say uh, yesterday when they had that meeting, Colorado was there, they were represented. There was no talk of it. And then all of a sudden, no, they're gone. Do you believe Klyovkov was caught off guard once again this time by Colorado? Yeah, I, I I do. Not just because it happened the first time, but because when if if they don't want these matters to get out, Colin Coward makes this point all the time. Things get out because people want it to get out. But if you were a well-run organization, and look, it's kind of ironic to be saying this about Colorado because they've been the worst, one of the worst Power Five football programs in the country for the last 20 years, basically. But if if you are a well-run organization, if you don't want anything to get out to people, if you don't want people to know, then you can go to that meeting and have a poker's face or have, have a good poker face. And, and, you know, now looking back on it, you say, oh my gosh, how did we not know? You know, Rick George left the media days early and he kind of scurried away and all this sort of stuff. Like, yeah, hindsight is is always 2020 there. But would George Klyovkov have come out at Pac-12 Media Day and said openly, hey, uh, yeah, we're worried about Colorado leaving? If he was worried, no. But at the same time, 
it doesn't feel out of the realm of possibility. I mean, with the way that the Pac-12 is, you know, they feel like they're in scramble mode and, and they feel like they're, again, not prepared for, for what has happened here. I haven't seen any indication that they would have actually known and that they're just trying to give, uh, you know, fodder to, to, to people like us with regards to, oh, yeah, no, we had no idea. Do you, because me and Judah disagree on this, Judah's still on Team Klyovkov. He still believes in him, has a little faith. I have no faith and no confidence in this guy. Like, he, he hasn't come out and given me anything that would give me confidence. I mean, at least Brett Yorbach's out there talking, even if he's just, you know, flapping his lips, he's at least explaining it to the fans, like, hey, we're trying to do stuff. George is out here saying, I'm not going to talk about the media rights deal because we're, we're talking about football today. We're focused on football. Well, okay, give me a little bit, and now your teams are leaving. How, what are your thoughts on Klyovkov right now? Do you have faith in him still, or is, uh, or is the time up for him? <laughs> so, no, we only have two minutes to answer this question. Goodness well, yeah, gracious. Yeah, take your time. Yeah, take your time. <laughs> this, is your, so, this is your show today, Spencer. Let's go. So, leading, so le- leading up to today, I had been what – some might have dubbed a defender of George Klyovkov, but I always compared my final assessment to him to the old, I think it's just a thought experiment, uh, Schrodinger's cat. Are you guys familiar with this with this concept? I have no idea what no. you're talking about, but I haven't self-explained so The idea yet. behind Schrodinger's cat is that there is a cat that is in a wooden box. You don't know anything about the box. And so then the box is placed on the table. And as you look at the box, it can be the cat itself can be thought of as both alive and dead. And you can make the argument either way. And you were, you aren't actually going to know until you open the box. And so everyone for the last many, many months has wanted to, you know, rush to judge George Klyovkov and say, he's terrible, no good, very bad. He's worse than Larry Scott. I mean, you see this in politics all the time. So-and-so is bad. And then so-and-so comes along and every party's just like, no, he's even worse than, you know, that guy over there and whatnot, right? So everyone was, or not everyone, but a lot of people were rushing to that particular conclusion. And I was just sitting there saying, look, I, I need to open the box first. I don't know the status of the cat until you open the box. I don't know if George Klyovkov is good because he was brought in to get this media rights deal done to stop other schools from leaving. This is now a big indictment of him because he was not able to keep Colorado at the table. He wasn't able to finish the media rights deal. And look, I, I'm still willing to give him a smidgen of a defense, but this is a pretty massive indictment. And up until 40 or you know, 24, 36 hours ago, I was in the camp of I'm not going to judge him until I see the media deal because that's like judging a kid uh, for, for the entire semester before you've seen his final exam. Like you've seen the homework assignments and he may have you know gotten C's and D's on those, but what if he pulls in a B plus or an A minus on the final exam, then things are suddenly not looking so bad. And technically, he still has the final exam left to go, but it looks like he left a page of it blank. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of where Judah's <laughs> that at. That hits a little too close to home, uh, Spencer. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you're right, but you're basically saying you need an evidence-based opinion with the guy. Yeah, but like you got to have something. You got to have something to go off of, other than well, we don't have a deal yet. Well, but you don't know what the deal is going to be. But is it, is it evidence that they lost three schools without him knowing about it? Well, okay, so that's why I said the Colorado thing is a big indictment of right, him right. at this point in time. We can't make a total final judgment. We need to see what happens next, but that is definitely a big knock on him. I don't hold the L.A. schools leaving against him at all. The, the, the foundation for that was laid far before George Klyovkov even interviewed for, for the commissioner job. That, that was Larry Scott's doing and the geographical realities of the sport and the way that everything is going and the greed. 
that took over in the universities and yada, 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 everything like that was was absolutely in, in, in play there. So I don't hold the L.A. schools against him. Colorado, though, 100 percent that that falls on George Klyovkov. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and uh, punch some audio here. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano as we move into our final segment here of hour number two on a busy, busy news day of a Thursday. We've been talking college sports and, you know, want to talk about pro sports for just a moment. I, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I'm a, uh, I grew up in Lake Oswego specifically, so I've been in this area my whole life. And I've always felt that w- when someone who is from this state or the next state up, up, up north, that being Washington, of course, makes it to the professional ranks. It always feels extra cool. It's cool when, you know, uh, for, for people from other states, when they see a kid from their hometown. But kids from Los Angeles, you know, going to be a five-star recruit or going to make it in the NFL or kids from down south, like it, it's, it's more commonplace. And that's one of the reasons I think Justin Herbert is just so very, very likable. And he just got a big big time contract for uh for the Los Angeles Chargers all these years later guys and I almost let it slip out it was almost <laughs> the San Diego Chargers almost it was that it was uh it was that close but it's, it's like if you say the Pac-12 now it's the Pac-9 <laughs> oh man was that too soon too soon or not just call it the Pac the I mean, Pac no, no 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 yeah. we're we're the we're the Pac we're we're the cat conference right we have nine lives because we have yeah. nine schools Wow. That's how that's how we're we're hanging out Fred in uh, in the pack. It was the Pac-12 when Justin Herbert was there, but now he's gotten to the NFL. He's having a bunch of success, is doing exceptionally well, and he's now got the big contract from the Chargers. So let's uh, let's punch a little bit of audio here. So the Chargers have locked up Justin Herbert to a big contract. Well, hold up here, Spencer. We got a little we got a little play for you here. <laughs> <laughs> We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call by Heating First and Cooling. All right. The guys are going to forgive me because I'm new here. That's that's good. That's what we're going to... That's we're going to chalk that one up to. But... Justin Herbert, big contract, and uh, Mike Florio says Brandon Staley is on the hot seat this year. He still doesn't want a playoff game, so why don't we so punch why don't it? We... Depending upon what happens, depending upon what happens, depending upon what happens. We're going to have to work that one out there, Spencer, but uh, basically Mike Florio says that uh, Brandon Staley is on the hot seat and uh, that this is a must win playoff game type season for the uh, for the Chargers to be successful. Well, I'm unclear as to how big of a lead Justin Herbert's going to have to give Brandon Staley's defense in order to win a playoff game, but apparently it needs to be bigger than what was the score last year? 20 I think it, it was I think they had like a 27 to 3 lead at one point. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was rather rather large. Final score was uh was was 31 to 30 the chargers had amassed a, a 27 to nothing lead that's nice. right yeah so look I'm, I'm not a big brandon staley fan you know he's been there for for two seasons now but i i just look at what look is he better than anthony lynn for justin herbert with the chargers yes that is 
unquestionably true. That's like saying anyone could have been better for Washington than Jimmy Lake because it was uh, an, an unbridled mess. But my, my issue with, with Brandon Staley is he comes over from Los Angeles and he's this defensive whiz kid over there. And I just haven't seen them establish an identity on the defensive side of the ball. I haven't seen them build a great defense on that side of the ball. And look, I like the Kellen Moore hired offensive coordinator because I did not think that uh, was it Joe Lombardi was what w- was necessarily the best option there for Justin Herbert. But frankly, my reaction to all of that was if you were going to make a change on the offensive side of the ball, why wouldn't you just get a new head coach and go get Sean Payton? What, what would the Chargers win total be? What would the expectations be for the Chargers if Justin Herbert had Sean Payton as his head coach. If the league is moving to offense, which it is, you better be able to build a dominant unit on the defensive side of the ball. A very, very clear. And they have so many great players as well. They've had Melvin Ingram. They've had, uh, they have Joey Bosa, right? Who's uh, a really good player. They drafted Kenneth Murray from Oklahoma. They've got Derwin James in the secondary. I know he's battled some injuries here, but I'm completely with, with Mike Florio here, Judah. If you don't win a playoff game, and you're you're Brandon Staley. Like this is year three, and you have a generational quarterback talent there. He is exactly what you were hoping he'd be when he took him number five overall a couple of years ago. It, it, it you have to win at least one playoff game. And look, you can say the offense should have been able to put up one touchdown in the second half. I would counter with the defense shouldn't have allowed thirty points in, uh, <laughs> or sorry, twenty four points in the second half or blown a 20 like if you have a 27 nothing lead it's the nfl it's not college where you can run up the score you know 63 to 14 that is that's just not realistic and not how not how it works i look at that game and in in the context of staley's coaching career and say dude you got to be able to win that game yeah you definitely have to and i think of the way that jacksonville competed with kansas city the next week and it was a close game down the stretch and you know how well the chargers play kansas city historically like, if they able to win that Jacksonville game, do they have a chance? I don't know. Mahomes got hurt in the first half on the sack by Arden Key, but you just wonder how far the uh, the Chargers could have gotten. I'm going to go uh, set you up for the next topic here. There was uh, there was a uh, another uh, uh, Sean Payton blast on the New York Jets today. He was blasting Nathaniel Hackett in a piece by USA Today, basically saying that uh, there is a lot of people that, that had the sins for the Denver Broncos last year but he cited Nathaniel Hackett specifically and then uh, took some shots at the Jets as well, where Hackett's the current OC. Then Robert Sala basically said today at, at Jets camp, he's like, hey, Sean can say what he wants because he's been in the league for a long time, but it's a, good, it's a good thing when you've got haters. That means that you're relevant and you're doing something right. What do you think about that? Um, well, I'm not going to acknowledge Sean on that. Is he, you know, he's been in the league a while. He can say whatever the hell he wants, but... Uh, but as far as, you know, what we have going on here, it's, um, you know, the, I kind of live by saying, if you ain't got no haters, you ain't popping. So hate away, you know, it's uh, obviously we're doing something right. If you got to talk about us when we don't play you till week four and I'm good with it, you know, but uh, you know, the guys in our locker room, they, they've earned everything that's coming to them. Yeah, my reaction is nobody's talking about the Jets because of Nathaniel Hackett and the wondrous hire that that could possibly be. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that Hackett has brought to the Jets 
is a familiar face for Aaron Rodgers, and maybe that helped get him over there. That is that is the only only sem- I, I I side with with Sean Payton on that. I think Sean Payton is coming in and saying, "Hey, <laughs> I got this great situation here. How could you not make this work? What what exactly are you missing? A lot of people at uh, at, at fault here for that sort of stuff. I, I don't think the Jets have the chance to be relevant because of Nathaniel Hackett. It's it or interesting because of Hackett. It's because of Rodgers. Hour three in the Bald Face Truth Radio Network coming up next. B F F T. Now, built by high caliber millwrights, in for John Canzano, here's Spencer McLaughlin with the ball faced truth. Hour three flying by on a Thursday. Goodness gracious, how is it already five o'clock? Well, it is five o'clock on the West Coast, six o'clock elsewhere, and uh, that elsewhere includes the time zone where Colorado exists. You know, Big 12 member, Colorado, that one. Anyway, Spencer McLaughlin with you in for John Canzano here on 750 The Game. It's the Bald Face Truth. Judah and Steven with me as well. I think it is a good time, as good a time as ever for the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. All right. Steven and I are going to uh, rotate the five biggest stories for you, Spencer, and, uh, okay. and get your thoughts on these in the world of sports and elsewhere. And uh, we're going to start with a tough scene out of Cincinnati today with some uh, training camp injuries mm-hmm. to the one and only Joe Burrow apparently went down with what they are saying is a calf injury, uh, which would be better than other alternatives, but... Steven, if you can play head coach Zach Taylor, uh, speaking with reporters, and then actually ESPN analyst Ryan Clark uh, talking about uh, the fact that they're calling it a calf injury for Joe Burrow at training camp today. I mean, you know, I think back to Kevin Durant a few years ago in the finals Mm. versus the Toronto Raptors. He dealt with a calf injury throughout the playoffs, and then it was that one subtle movement movement that tore his Achilles and so if coach Taylor is correct and it's a calf injury then both Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals are so lucky but when you're somebody like Joe who as you said Field is on the precipice of the largest contract in football history in NFL history not just for the position but in total you're scared you want to make sure that you're healthy. And if you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you want to make sure your franchise player is ready to go going forward. But for the immediate, this is a team that is set to challenge the Kansas City Chiefs once again in AFC for supremacy. And without Joe Burrow, that's an impossibility. So how important of an injury is this for Joe Burrow and the, and the Bengals' chances in the AFC? Well, the callback to Kevin Durant circa 2019 against the Raptors is spot on because he had been dealing with a calf injury. That's why I mean he didn't play in those Western Conference finals that the Blazers were in and probably won't be in for another 778 oh, years or so. Come on. Uh, it just it just feels it's not it's not it's a tough time to be a Pacific Northwest sports fan right right now. The the Mariners can't get out of the mud of mediocrity. Oregon's future is uncertain and uh, you know Washington had a great year but it was in the Alamo but anyway so I I think that that injury that was holding him out he then attempted to come back from in the finals and then he injured it and had to have surgery and it looked the same you know the non-contact component the way he jumps 
in the air. It looked very much like Durant when he first injured it in, I think it was the conference uh, semifinals against the Houston Rockets in, in that 2019 playoff run for, for the Warriors there. So uh, it, it, it stinks. And especially for a guy who, as you heard, is about to, you know, cash in. He's about to get a massive contract and he's earned every penny of it. I mean, this is a guy who has brought the Bengals, the, the, the Bengals, not the Bayou Bengals at LSU, the Cincinnati cheapest organization in the NFL, except for the Cardinals, maybe. They, they might have taken that title from him. But this has been a train wreck for the most part since Marvin Lewis and Andy Dalton left who couldn't get out of the first round. Like They were so middling, and all of a sudden, they were one drive away from winning from winning the Super Bowl. They beat the chip. They've got a rivalry with the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. Like th- this guy is so unbelievably good in every way and fits Cincinnati so very, very well. And it stinks to see him dealing with this. They, you know, said calf strain, and hopefully that's all it is. But boy, you, it, it would make the AFC a little bit less interesting. In a, in a league in the NFL that is loaded with quarterbacks, it would make them a little bit less interesting if Joe Burrow were ha- were to have to miss a sizable chunk of or all of the season, essentially. Because the Bengals without Joe Burrow, you will learn his value very, very quickly. All right, Stephen, number two. All right, number two here. Speaking of greatness, Joe Burrow's great. Shohei Otani, maybe even greater. Uh Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim doubleheader today against the Tigers. First game, Otani, one hit, one hit, shutout, complete game, pitching. Next game, two home runs. Now, he did leave the second game with a little hamstring injury as he hurt it on the second of his home runs. Uh, but the Angels now, they have said that they are not going to trade Shohei Otani as he was supposedly maybe on the block as he'll be a free agent next season. Angels say they're not trading him. With the doubleheader sweep of the Tigers today, they're three games out of the wild card, Spencer. Can the Angels and Otani, can they make a little run, get to the wild card and keep Otani in L.A.? Or would it be smarter to trade him and get the assets and not just lose them for a draft pick? Well, they they have to they have to avoid what has been a running joke of a headline for the L.A. Angels over the last several years. And the joke goes something like this. Mike Trout went three for four with a home run and drove in three. Shohei Otani blasted his league-leading 28th home run of the year while throwing six innings of one-run ball while the Angels lost to the Tigers seven to four. Like, that has been the consistent theme for the Angels is they haven't been able to sustain it because outside of Shohei Otani, they haven't been able to find a consistently deep pitching staff. Mike Trout has been hurt far too often to you know, help them make make a run in, in certain key situations, though he is still great. And, you know, it, it's just amazing to watch a franchise have, statistically speaking, the two greatest baseball players ever, not of our generation, not of this decade, not of this century, ever. Statistically, that is what those two guys are because they are so good and so dominant. And Mike Trout has played in, I think, one playoff game or one playoff series in his career. And Shohei Otani has never been to the playoffs. No, now, no playoff wins for Mike Trout either. Got swept. Yeah, in the no, series. no, no, pl- no playoff wins. And you know the the Angels have had they're 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 honestly tragically a little bit like the Blazers. They have this transcendent talent who is their guy. Dame was the Blazers guy. 
Mike Trout, Angels guy, never been anywhere anywhere else. Same with Shohei Otani. And the front office and the ownership cannot get out of their own way. They can't make the right moves. They're never able to put together a roster that resembles what the best rosters in Major League Baseball have looked like, or even what the what the good rosters in Major League Baseball have looked like. They're, they gave money to Albert Pujols. That was always going to be a mess. Anthony Rendon, that was never going to work out. Lo and behold, it has not, and they just cannot put it all together. So I think the question for, for their ownership is, do we want to continue to make the money that Shohei brings by selling out the stadium every time he's starting or almost every time he play. I mean, big crowds will show up to go see Shohei Otani. And if he's not there, the desire to watch the Angels plummets considerably, even if Mike Trout is still there. So they're, ha- they're looking at this calculation of, do we want the revenue to continue coming in for the rest of this season and then just let him walk and we get nothing for him? Or do we want to move him and get young pieces for the future to try to build an actual core the way the Texas Rangers have and then make free agent moves at the time that could help supplement, you know, young players like uh, Adolis Garcia over there in, in Texas who are, who are really, really good. But they're not out of the playoff picture, so I think that's enough for them to justify that, that they keep him. But their history would tell you it, it's just not going to work out the way they'd like it to. Number three in our five at five, going back to, to Sean Payton, and he just unloaded in this piece with uh, Jarrett Bell on USA Today. But one of the other things he touched on was the NFL's gambling policy and how it makes the league look pretty hypocritical. He says the policy oh is not anything uh, the way that it should be. He says you've got a bunch of players getting D's on the test, so you have to start looking at the message. We have a lot of D's in our league this year with this policy. Of course, there is a uh, a 10th player since April suspended for violating the league's policy on gambling. Uh, and uh, Broncos defensive end Iomi Uwazarike uh, was suspended. So Nice pronunciation uh, there, Judah. That I, was clean. That man, was very clean. Practiced it like a dozen times before the segment. No big deal. <laughs> but he just points out to the NFL's growing relationship with the gambling industry and uh, saying there's a handful of owners that are owning these things like DraftKings or FanDuel, but a player can't engage with it basically at all. And then he said, basically, where wherever you carry a gun, you can't bet on games. He said, that's the message I'm, I'm sending to my players. Team facility, team hotel, team plane, team anything. Basically, the same places you know you're not supposed to have a gun. Just, you know, put it in your head. It's the same places you're not allowed to do any betting on uh, on any sport, and especially you can't bet on the NFL. Do you have a problem with the NFL's gambling policy, Spencer? Does it need changing? No, I, I, I don't. I mean, the NFL has advertising partnerships with a bunch of alcohol and beer companies. Does that mean does that mean that they're responsible when a player gets a DUI? Is is that is that a is that a hypocritical look? Well, you know, the NFL that they, they like they they said they said that uh that alcohol was okay and everything. They've got these they're taking the money from Bud Light and Miller Light and everybody like that. But there's there 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 has to be an element of nuance to it. You cannot allow if you were a sports league gambling to permeate throughout the league itself and the rules that they have set up as you alluded to judah are you can't anywhere you wouldn't be able to take a gun this is the united states of america owning a gun last time i checked is still legal not everybody loves that but that's the way that it is 
So then some people ask, well, why is John Morant, you know, getting in trouble for all this stuff? It's not illegal to own a gun. But when you work in certain professions, you are going to be held to a higher standard. If you are a politician, legally, it's not illegal to have an affair. That's not illegal. But guess what? If you have one, you might be getting voted out of office or you might be resigning. That's the way this works. You can say, I don't like that. I don't think it should be that way. Then don't work in that particular industry. If you're an NFL player and you need to gamble so badly and you just you want to gamble so, so badly and you just get, I want to be able to do it anywhere at any point in time, you are welcome to exit the league. But I think the NFL is well within its rights and well within reason to say, no, we don't want you doing it this at the facility or when you're with the team or in organized team activities. We don't want you betting on our actual sport because that can snowball into threatening the integrity of the game. They're covering all their bases on that front, but they are not saying, to my to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong here, they are not saying when you're sitting in your couch in the off season and you're in your house, you can place, you know, however large of a bet you want on the NBA finals. To my knowledge, like like that's okay, right? As long as it's nothing having to do with the NFL, then you can still bet on it, but you can't bet on it, you know, in the in any team facility or the locker room. So yeah, your example of being at home betting on the NBA, that's still within the rules uh to be able to do that. Just like kicking back and casually having a pop. Yeah, and and if you're a player who thinks that that's unacceptable, then you might need to be dialing 1-800-GAMBLER. Do you think it's a little strange that the guys have been suspended so far are on their rookie deals, no established vets, and no uh, star players outside of the very first example, and the league was trying to make an example out of Calvin Ridley? Do I think that it is a coincidence that in a matter in which the NFL is trying to establish professionalism and protect integrity, that the violators are young rookies who haven't been in the league very long? Not particularly, no. I am not. No no other veterans out there, you know, that are breaking the rules. You know. Yeah. Do we think that Tom Brady was out there uh, bending, bending the rules and whatnot? I don't know. Did you watch him play last year? He was pretty bad. <laughs> Maybe throwing some games. Might have had, that might have had something to do with the fact that he was like 74 years old. He had his player props under. That's what he had. I think, <laughs> you're probably right. I would say, though, that if they, for whatever reason, were able to prove that there was a big-time quarterback that was uh, – painting outside the lines it would not be in the league's best interest to suspend that player uh because of i don't know which quarterback is wired in in a in a world and i see your point however in a world in which quarterbacks are paid so much more than everybody else i fail to see which big time quarterback would have placed that much Mm -hmm. money to make it worth it on a wager to go under his own player prop or something rather than oh by the way my salary is however many tens of millions of dollars every year with a contract that's going to pay me if I'm Mahomes 500 million. Did you guys see Mahomes' house on the quarterback series? No, it's it's amazing. But the the point is with gambling is, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't really have to do with the money. It's it's the experience. It kind of has to do with the money. 
Well, even kind of, but I mean, it's God, about like, it's, if, it's, if, it's if about Michael, the rush, but you, it's about why, the rush. Why did it's Michael about, Jordan love gambling? You know, Honestly, it's about the rush to, to get money. To get money and yeah. try to have like to feel like you have an. an, it's, an, it's, an, not, uh, an it's not because you need the money on your bottom line. It's it's much more the the experience, the vehicle in which you take en route to the cash. And I just, I don't know. I just wonder. That's true. I just wonder if there's, and even if it's not a quarterback, he's Jamison Williams is a skill position player. He's probably outside of Ridley, like the most recognizable figure that's gotten popped for this. And for him, it was six games. I just, I, I continue I, to be amazed that, you know, no matter, no matter how many guys seem to get caught, more guys are just continuing to do it. Just over, like, <laughs> are, 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 you know, fool, fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, thrice, I don't even know what goes beyond thrice in this particular brand of the English language. So, anyway, what else we got? Yeah, number four, uh, some happier news here. Bronny James, we all know he suffered cardiac arrest on Monday at a practice at USC, but today he has been released from the hospital. Uh, spokespeople are saying, you know, they have confirmed that that is true. LeBron James, he was on X, I guess, or Twitter, you know, formerly known as Twitter. I don't know what we're calling it now, but uh, he, he said that I want to thank the countless people sending my family love and prayers. We feel you, and I'm so grateful. Everyone is doing great. We have our family together safe and healthy, and we feel your love. We'll have more to say when we're ready, but I wanted to tell everyone how much your support has meant to all of us. Hashtag James Gang. So he is confirming that Bronny is out and back and doing as healthy as he possibly can. Uh, just good news all around there in a scary situation for, you know, an 18-year-old. And Bronny James to suffer cardiac arrest at a just at a practice, just out of nowhere. Uh, you know, very scary stuff, but it seemed like USC had the, all the all the right equipment on on hand there. So when he got to the hospital, he was conscious and uh, as prepared as possible. So it's good news out of uh, LA there, there. Yeah, it was. It was, and you know what it makes me think of. I I I do play by play for Southern Utah University, and I've seen you know kind of behind the scenes on what goes into putting on a college athletics sporting event. There are so many people. There are staffers. There are social media teams. There are in-game hosts. There are stats people. There's P. I mean, there, there's so many people that don't get, you know, all the, the credit or attention or love or pomp and circumstance or everything that go into cr helping create a product that people enjoy so much in, in, in college sports. And the medical and training staff are, an, an essential part of that. And if you go talk to any college athlete, they will have almost assuredly a really good relationship with all their trainers because they know how important it is for them to be there and for them to be there if, God forbid, something like this does happen. So uh, definitely big props to the USC medical staff for uh, being on top of it, being prepared, and being able to handle something like that. That is just – I mean – I wonder if uh, the whole DeMar Hamlin situation – really you know put put these schools and put these teams on alert and on high I notice. think they've, I think they've always been on on pretty high alert especially in college when you're doing not that I, I don't think anyone's ever had a shortage of uh this sort of stuff at least not to my knowledge I can't think of an example per se but I, I think that when you're dealing especially with kids you know there's there's plenty of talk about you know kids need to be paid and schools are taking advantage of it and all and all that sort of stuff which I've always uh, I, I've never really sided with that side of it, but like the schools do care about their student athletes very, very much so. And I think this is uh, a, a very serious, but also somewhat comforting example of that in that something like this can happen 
that can bring you to a near death experience and you will be you will be taken care of you know as as upsetting and uh sad as it was to to see and as fearful as everybody was i think there's a level of comfort knowing hey these schools are prepared to to take care of these kids no matter what happens to them last one of the uh, five at five we will talk a little oregon state here and a, a tough injury for them uh, interior guard marco brewer a senior is out for the season after the the online mentor and acl last mm. week during a workout obviously the beavers have yet to officially start fall camp but brewer apparently tore his acl during a workout last week Six four, three hundred and twelve pounder grew up in corvallis was entering his fourth year at osu after transferring from laney college and uh, was certainly at, at the very least going to be a, a nice depth piece to that old line and possibly a starter at one of the guard positions spencer Overall, obviously, OSU's run game and offensive line is a strength of theirs. It just sucks always to to see injuries of any kind to these programs, even before fall camp gets started. It, it, it does. And the good news for Oregon State is the offensive line is probably their greatest strength going into this season. You know, you can look at what the defense did a year ago. They've had some key personnel losses. They have key personnel returners and some newcomers. You know, we'll see what... Uh, four-star recruit Kelsey Howard from down in Las Vegas can do for him. But you have Oladapo at uh, at safety and, and some other guys who can make plays. You have Trent Bray, of course, the defensive coordinator. But the offensive line, I talked with Max Chadwick of PFF not that long ago, and he said that Oregon State is, for him, a preseason top five offensive line in the country. Not in the Pac-12, not at West, top five in the country. And I, I think that Oregon you know, really learned how good that offensive line is a year ago when when they couldn't stop them from running the football. I mean, it was, you know, zone left and zone right. Those are basically the only plays they were running, and they were able to move up and down the field basically at, at will. So I, I think that that's, you know, not what you want to hear if you're Oregon State, but that's why, you know, when we talk about recruiting, and, you know, that seems like the eighth most important college sports topic right now, recruiting, but, you know, it does still matter and whatnot. This is what you need to continue recruiting for. This is why you need depth. This is why you want to, you know, add depth pieces via the transfer portal. This is why you want to, you know, sign a pair of three or four star offensive linemen at the same position in the same class. Because when a guy goes down, the good teams are able to have a minimal, if any, talent drop off to the next guy who is able to step up. That's how the best programs run. And that's, you know, what Oregon State is now trying to be. They're trying to be one of the best teams of the pack year in and year out. You're going to deal with situations like this, and you have to be able to prove to yourself and others that, you know, we're not one big injury on the offensive line away. You know, quarterback is different, of course, but we're not one offensive line injury away from suddenly going back to being a six and six, five and seven team. I don't feel that they are. Uh, it, it stinks for the kid for sure, and I feel for him. But I think for Oregon State, it, it's something that you, you got to be able to deal with, and, and hopefully for the Beavs' sake that they'll – uh, they'll be able to do that. I would love to get your opinion on the Beavs here, Spencer. Um, you yeah. know, I, I got questions about them. I got questions defensively. They lost a lot of guys, Alex Austin, Rajon Wright, Jaden Grant. You know, he may not be the best, most talented kid, but he was definitely the leader of that defense. Then Omar Spates leaves to go to LSU. And then even offensively, like, are we sure DJ Uyunglele comes in and, you know, perfects that offense? He, he struggled down at Clemson. They They didn't want him. They didn't want him in Clemson. Then, you know, he got rid of him. Oregon State right now, you can look at them 13 to one to win the conference. Uh, do you think there's any value there? Do you think Oregon State has a has the talent to really compete for the Pac-12 title, or are we overrating last season's 10 wins just slightly? You talk about DJU, 
and what he was at Clemson and say they didn't want him there. Wasn't any good. That's that's true. They didn't want him. They benched him several times, went in the portal and such. But that was at Clemson. And what are they asking their quarterback to do at Clemson? They're asking him to be the focal point of the offense. They're running the offense through the quarterback, through the air, mind you. Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, those teams that got to and won national championships, yeah, the quarterback was going for 300-plus every single game. What does Oregon State need from the quarterback position? They went, what, 7-1 and one last year with Ben Goldbranson, who was not a guy who could consistently push the ball down the field. I mean, they had a windy night up in, up in Seattle, and he couldn't throw the ball more than you know 20 yards down the field accurately in the air because he didn't have the arm strength for it. So then you remove that dimension – of Oregon State's offense, and you make them you know, even more one-dimensional. And obviously, they're going to be run heavy. But what I look at with DJU, and I think it's a question to ask. There's no, there are no guarantees with any of this stuff. But I think a fair question to ask is, what can DJ be in the Oregon State offense compared to what he was asked to be in the Clemson offense? He doesn't need to throw. He could go the entire season. He could elevate Oregon State's quarterback play and never throw for 300 yards. That could happen. They would get more out of their quarterback in 2023 than in 2022, and he could never throw for 300 yards in a single game. My question about him, can he be 220 to 260 yards a game, one to two touchdowns, and relatively take care of the ball and just present enough of a threat to push the ball down the field to give their offense some some balance and a vertical dimension? Do you think that Oregon State at 13-1 – Good value bet there. The sixth in the conference, basically based off you know conference championship odds. Is that where you'd have Oregon State? You have them a little higher. They're sixth in the odds. Yeah, the head, UCLA is ahead of them. I put them above then UCLA. The then you got the top four: Utah. USC, I I, I, I would I would say Pac-12 for uh, for Spencer's hierarchy of teams most likely to win the Pac-12. USC number one. I think they're the favorite. I will put Utah number two. Oregon and Washington, I think, are a tie at at number three. I can make the case pretty easily either way. They both have scheduling breaks and scheduling challenges. Um, but I think both have got really good teams, really good quarterbacks. Uh, I think Washington's got you know a little bit more of refinement at the quarterback position, probably the better OC, but Oregon, I think, can bring more on the defensive side of the ball. I would put Oregon State above UCLA. I'm a fader on UCLA for 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 this uh for this season but anyway we'll hop out of here still more coming on the bald face truth spencer mclaughlin in for john canzano right here on 750 spencer mclaughlin continuing on here for john canzano on this thursday thank you so much for making this part of your day so we've been talking all day today about you know colorado and leaving the pac-12 going back to the big 12 which their board of regents finalized in a nine nothing vote uh, earlier this afternoon. So they were uh, unanimous in their desire to return to the Big 12. So that leaves the Pac-12 scrambling. And, you know, it, it's just kind of a shame because it's so classic Pac-12. It's, it's just so classic to have this great, this football season for the Pac-12. I know all this media stuff matters and whether or not the conference can survive. It's literally hanging in the balance beyond this season. But it's just a shame that this is going to overshadow what is going to be an outstanding final season of the Pac-12 as we know it. Who knows if or what it'll look like 
uh, going forward. But you have Caleb Williams, final year of college football, returning Heisman Trophy candidate. And you just have storylines across the board. Utah going for a third consecutive Pac-12 championship. No one's ever done that before. Not in the conference's history. And this is, of course, perhaps the final iteration of the conference as with 12 teams. Maybe they're 10 in the future. Maybe they're 14. We don't know. They're going for a third straight conference title, also trying to get over the hump and, and win a Rose Bowl. You have Oregon that came up one quarter short a year ago against Oregon State of getting to the Pac-12 title game. Now Dan Lanning's coaching after having received an extension and a raise with that added bit of pressure and whether or not he's able to make the defense better than it was a season ago in which they struggled in a couple different areas more than I thought they would as an Oregon fan. And they've made a lot of personnel changes, but you get, everything looks great on paper, but you got to show it on the field. Plenty of storylines for Oregon and whether or not they can get back there. Washington, year two with Kalen DeBoer. Michael Penix comes back. Heisman Trophy candidate here in uh, in the preseason. They had a better year than I think anyone, especially myself, was expecting in 2022. They're a conference contender. They've got a game at Michigan State. That, By the way, did you guys know that that Michigan State game is going to be played exclusively on Peacock? Exclusively on Peacock this year. What do you guys think about that? I did know that. Um, I mean, it's kind of where everything's going, though, right? I feel like that's what the Pac-12 is going to be when they get their media rights deal. A lot of it's just going to be streaming on apps or different things. So I feel like it's kind of the you know what we're going to see in the near future. But you know, as a Pac-12 fan, like it's a little disappointing. I would love for it to be on national TV so everyone can get the get to see that game, but. Especially because that's a game that Washington probably is going to win. You know, they're going to be favored in that game. They're an 11 and a half point. Yeah. They're an 11 and a half point road favorite in East Lansing. That's why it would be great to see that game. You'll have the whole nation see that game. But uh, yeah, I think it's kind of where we're going. Well, that's that's actually a good point. Yeah. A big statement non con win for the Pac 12 buried on uh, on peacock the playoff there's a playoff game in the nfl a wild card game that's going on peacock exclusively as well and that's the one that's the one i remember but i forgot that that UW michigan state is peacock exclusive this year that'll be interesting but it's a good thing i like suits you know that's why i got peacock so you know that in the office that that means i get to watch Penix week two yeah you know what i what I get annoyed with with all these streaming services, number one, the number of times I have to sign in and re-sign in when you don't go on a streaming service for a little while, it, it bothers me like absolutely mm. no other. But we just have to get used to this because <laughs> this is, as you guys alluded to, where the world is kind of going and sports are no different. Like e- Jimmy Pitaro, the president of ESPN, has been very open and honest about the fact that one day – there isn't going to be an ESPN cable channel. There won't be ESPN and ESPN. They're just going to go all streaming and be a direct-to-consumer product like Peacock or Netflix or Paramount Plus, which is strange, but it does kind of draw into question as we just we truly can't shake. See, even I'm trying to talk about football, uh, and I'm drawn back to the Pac-12 media. I, well, this it, thing is just the disease. It's not wrong either, because you know you talk about Dion as well and why he would get want to get to the the Big Twelve, and you know you mentioned like he doesn't need the Big Twelve to recruit Texas necessarily, but it doesn't hurt. It probably helps him a little bit. But but where it kind of intersects with media is like he doesn't have to worry about pitching parents now on signing up for streaming services to watch their kids or get an eye on TV. 
or get the CW, you know? Like, he doesn't have to worry about that now. He's like, yeah, we're on Fox and ESPN. Guess what? We weren't guaranteed that before. And, and, you know, that's the one part of, like, the media thing that actually does play in living rooms is making sure it's as simple as ever for the the parents to watch the kids play. And, you know, that matters a little bit. I was going to say, let's go back to the field then a little bit, Spencer. I'm interested to hear what's your your favorite non-conference game in the Pac-12 coming up this season. You got a favorite that you're looking forward to? There are so many, so many great ones. And just to finish up on the storylines for the contenders, by the way, Oregon State – trying to make the Pac-12 championship game for the first time, how UCLA resets after losing Dorian Thompson-Robinson and Zach Chardonnay. Um, I, I I think UCLA is the least likely of the six quote-unquote contenders. I would also not uh, sleep on a team that I've long been perhaps excessively bullish on. That's the California Golden Bears. I loved them over four and a half wins for many months on, uh, on my Locked On Pac-12 podcast. And then all of a sudden I woke up one day and their win total was five and a half. And I'm just gonna give myself credit for speaking. Well, let, let, me give you th- let me I, I need to talk about this. I the more the more I do research on Cal, the more I like him. What do you think of Sam Jackson the fourth? He, he, I watched him in the spring game. Looked great. Uh, Dynamic. I'm starting. I'm starting to be like you. I'm starting to get a little bullish on him. At the start, I was thinking, oh, they're you know three, four wins, whatever. But I love Wilcox as a coach. I love Sam Jackson in there. What, you know, Cal. What 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 makes you like him even more? Okay, so first of all, week two, they have a non-conference game where they host Auburn, which is a fascinating game. Also, can you, tell, I, can you tell us why they're at North Texas week one? Why take that game in Denton, Texas? Why are you going down there? Um, That's a question for the athletic department that I'm <laughs> unclear of, probably because it's a road game against a, a G5 that they feel they can they can win. Uh, that, that one is indeed peculiar. But hosting Auburn for their home opener week two is going to be wildly fun. I've been picking them to win that game since, oh, I don't know, March or February. And I have not seen anything to make me think that I should move off of that pick. Because when I look at Cal, the reason that I love, and, and, and by the way, just to be clear, I loved them over four and a half wins. Like, let's keep this all in perspective. It's still Cal. But the reason I think they, they can be a bowl eligible team this year and perhaps pull an upset of one of those six contenders, certainly UCLA at least. but the reason is that their weakness over the Justin Wilcox era has been the same year after year. Now, their defense actually took a step back last year, statistically compared to what they usually are, but they get Brett Johnson back on the defensive line. That's a big piece. He's an all-conference caliber player. You have Jackson Sermon to anchor the linebacking unit, and you always have good DBs at Cal. They just always have. So I And I think Justin Wilcox, as a defensive coordinator, is – really, really sharp. So I trust him there for them to rebound defensively. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is the offense has always been the problem, but look at what they're doing now. They've brought in a new offensive line coach because their offensive line was a mess. They brought in a new offensive coordinator and they've got a new offensive philosophy and they look more like everybody else. They're not running, you know, kind of like this big, heavy kind of Utah, Oregon state, like they never felt like they had a clear identity. Now, they're going to be, you know, running a lot of 11 personnel out of the shotgun. They bring in a guy at quarterback who's the most dynamic, explosive playmaker with his arm and legs that Cal has had since Jared Goff. That is not overstating it. He has got a big arm. He has to learn to rein it in. Absolutely. He's not super experienced, but they're going to be able to run plays offensively that they just haven't been able to run before because it just wasn't a part of their personnel. And then you match that 
with Jaden Ott, who's one of the most versatile backs probably in the country. I mean, he's really good. Four-star recruit. He was a stud as a true freshman last year. He would have been freshman of the year if not for Damian Martinez at Oregon State. But Jaden Ott is the best running back you haven't heard of in the Pac-12. They lost J. Michael Sturdivant on the perimeter. That's a key receiving piece. But they return Jeremiah Hunter. They bring in, I think it's Nigeria. Nigel Hunt, I have to look up his first name, but top 100 player in uh, for, for the incoming freshman in the eyes of 24-7 sports. So they've got weapons. They've got skill position guys. They've added transfers to revamp their offensive line. They've got a new cut. I, I see them addressing weaknesses, and I don't think they were as far away from being a bowl-eligible team last year as some people think. They very nearly beat UCLA in the last week of the regular season. So... That is why I have been optimistic. They have a top 20 portal class in the country. I think they're going to have weapons. I think they're going to have a new offensive coordinator who succeeded there before. And I think they've got a quarterback that is going to be able to make explosive plays, the likes of which we just haven't seen from Cal in, uh, in, in quite some time. I'm, uh, the, I'm, not, I'm not just pulling it out of the blue. I got my reasons. <laughs> three and three and bullish th- on Cal. Three and twelve in their last fifteen games of games decided by one score or less. Also, yeah, so not great. It's a little bit, of, a little bit of unluck. You know that could re, you know get back to normal a little bit, a little bit of average. Yeah, they're like they're like the anti Minnesota Vikings. That's <laughs> that's that's what they are. So that means if the Vikings are a, a fall back team, that means Cal is a fall is a fall forward team. You might have to wait on that win total till November down the stretch too, because they got they got a. By the way, they they're hosting Oregon State on their homecoming this year. Mm-hmm. I don't think Oregon State Interesting should, game. Should have look that game on. Interesting uh, game that is. Justin Wilcox, a good defensive coach, could he cause DJ Uyunglele to to have some to have some fits? That's where yeah, we've seen it before. That's where Aiden Charles debuts and uh, <laughs> takes the world by storm. No, I'm just kidding. I I, I just but. Cal's got USC and Oregon out of their bye week back to back. You know, that's that's tough sledding. Yeah, that is probably you know. a pair of losses there. But then they finish the year hosting Wazoo and then road games at Stanford and UCLA. So that's three one that is three, I won't say wins, but winnable games for Cal. So, Those are top yeah. first of all, I think they I think they're better than Stanford. Yeah, clearly. I don't think. Yeah, and then the Was- between Washington State and UCLA, can you get one of those and can you beat Auburn? I think I think they're capable of. So if you got that over ticket, you might be you might be clenching it in November, but I think you still got a chance to, you know, to win that thing as the weeks tick down. Oh uh, yeah, we might be. Well, the Blazers are still clenching on to Damian Lillard. I have a thought about that. Next on 750 the game, Spencer McLaughlin in for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth. Spencer McLaughlin here in for John Canzano on the Bald Faced Truth Radio Network. You know, the Pac twelve and Damian Lillard have something in common right now. Their heydays for Pacific Northwest sports fans are long behind them. So Damian Lillard is uh, still, by the way, for those of you who are wondering, a member of the Portland Trailblazers. And nothing has been done on that front. And it's, uh, I think in a lot of people's minds, kind of faded to the background. I mean, none of you were probably thinking about it as you, we're listening to the show or reading the sports news because it's all about Colorado and the Pac-12 in the future. And it's a big story, understandably so. But then there was this other thing that, you know, crossed my mind, which is one of the best players in franchise history demanding a trade. And in some people would say the best player. And there's certainly an argument to be made on that front. But the unfortunate thing for Portland Trailblazers fans is that 
they're now in the midst of a conundrum. They're in a glass case of emotion, the likes of which we haven't seen since Anchorman and Ron Burgundy. Circa 2003 is when I believe that movie came out. So the reason that I say that Blazer fans are there is because if the perfect deal had existed, much like the Pac-12 media deal, if the perfect deal actually existed, I think we would have seen it happen already. Meaning that Damian Lillard's future is in control of the team. And Blazer fans have to ask themselves, do I want to do right by the guy who has given his entire career to Portland, who's been as loyal as he could possibly be, be, who's put up with front office mismanagement and an inability to get him star players or make high-level draft picks that turn into star players. The guy who has hit two iconic series-winning three-pointers, one with less than a second and one from, I don't know, my, my hometown zip code of Lake Oswego. Do I want to be loyal to that guy? Is that what I want to happen? Do I want the best for Dame no matter what? Or do I want the best for the organization? Because the length of time that has gone by between Damian Lillard requesting a trade and today, July 27th, it's sizable enough to me to where you're probably only going to get one or the other. And that just feels like a win-lose scenario. Some people might say, Dame gave us everything. We should do right by him. And the organization might not get the best possible trade. And some people might say, we, you know, we're making a move with Jeremy Grant. I don't know if Jeremy Grant was a move we were all hoping they would necessarily make, but it's a move we were trying to build and Dame requested it. And, you know, at the end of the day, we love Dame, but we have to do what, what's in the best interests of the organization and the future, which is going to be centered around Scoot Henderson, Shaden Sharp, and of a variety of other pieces, including apparently Jeremy Grant, depending on what the timeline ends up being. Because I don't know who would take Jeremy Grant for $32.5 million or so. But I don't see a world in which Dame gets what he wants going to Miami and the Blazers get the sort of deal that they want to be a contending team as soon as possible and have a young core and acquire picks and young players. Now, the thought that I have had that could make this work potentially though I don't know if they would necessarily do it, is to involve the Oklahoma City Thunder. And the reason that I throw the Thunder out there as a potential third-teamer is, you know, there was all the noise with Damian Lillard and his agent saying, nope, we won't play anywhere except Miami. If you trade us somewhere else, uh, you know, we're not going to play or not be happy or anything like that. And Blazer fans could very well wring their hands and say, not my problem. It's the other team's problem. Damian Lillard doesn't have a no-trade clause no no a no trade clause in his contract so he just kind of has to go wherever the blazers trade and wherever they can get the best deal but the only way it could possibly work out for both sides is a three-teamer with miami and oklahoma city who for the next two drafts this is a true thing that i double checked before coming on and hosting today's show they have eight first round picks in the next two drafts 2024 and 2025, the Thunder control eight first-round picks. So if you sent Dame to Miami and Miami sent pieces 
and maybe picks over to the Thunder, and the Thunder sent a bunch of picks to Portland, maybe both sides could be happy. But Judah, Steven, it just feels like this is going to be a one-sided entity. Either the franchise gets what they most want, or Damian Lillard gets what he most wants. And I, I don't think there are a lot of scenarios in which you can thread the needle there. Yeah, you're you're right on that. It seems like it's going to be one or the other. But for me, as a Blazer fan, like I want them to get the most back that they can for Dame. And I understand all the stuff that Dame has done here in Portland. But at the same time, like you talk about who are you loyal to? I'm loyal to the Blazers. Like I, you know, I grew up in grew up in Milwaukee. You know, I was born in 1987. I was here during the 90s. Like there survived a lot of a lot of players. They'll survive the loss of Dame. So I'm with you. I think Dame has played. I think Dame has not played this very well. Uh, him and his agent just saying Miami or nothing. I think it's going to have to involve a third team, maybe a fourth team. That's why it's taking so long. I think the key date, obviously, July 31st. That's when Jaime Jaquez, he's available to be traded. I think we're going to hear a lot more news after that. Is you know They're negotiating now, but he'll be involved in the trade. I imagine he's one of the big prospects for Miami. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. It's gonna be tough to get him to Miami, but at some point, like if you're the Blazers, you Joe Crow, you got to play hardball. You got to get what you can when you have a very, uh, franchise guy like Dame. Yeah, I mean, July first seems like forever ago now, but uh, you know, he, we've almost it was him. forever ago. It was over three weeks ago. We're coming up on a month ago. We, we've almost got a full month of keeping Pat Riley at bay. I say that feels <laughs> pretty good for now, uh, considering his muscle. I just can't fathom. September and training camp coming around and Dame still being on this roster. And if he is on this roster, I just don't see him playing. And I might be in the minority on that, but I just don't see why you would want to risk either injury or some something like that with that guy. I think you know, he's played his you last Blazer game. You know, Judah, you say you can't see September coming around and Dame uh, you know, not being in, in Miami and such. I, I couldn't have seen the end of July rolling around without a Pac twelve media deal, but that's <laughs> that that's that's where we're at. And we've reached that point. On today's show where it's time to sign off, Judas, Stephen, appreciate you guys. My thanks to John Canzano as well for giving me the chance to host today's show. Hope you all enjoyed it. I'm Spencer McLaughlin and for John Canzano here on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. See you next time whenever and wherever that may be. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.